All right, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex once again with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. <clears throat> and uh, on this rant, we're going to be ranting with um, a guy variously known as uh, Josef Needleman and Josef Leib, <clears throat> who... Uh, Ibn Mardachia. Oh, so do you want to give the full... Uh... Sure, the range, range yeah. of names. Well, pen name Ibn Mardachia. Shout out to my dad, who's a, who's a Mordechai, who's a Marty. But also a drug reference, because, uh, well, I'll explain later. Ibn Mardachia was the main pen name I used and still kind of use once in a while. Oh, well, I would have thought that the pen name was Yosef Lay, because that's what you that's the name that you wrote your book under. That's my real name. That's You're... my actual uh, Christian Hebrew name, as it were. That's, uh-huh. that's the name they gave me uh, very early well, on. Well, that's the name you were born with. Yeah. All right, yeah. so where did the Needleman come from? I'm afraid I was born with that also, I'm afraid. But my uh, dad. My dad was Needleman, but really... The name that I gave you that I never use in conjunction with either Facebook or writing is Needleman Ruiz with the R-U-I-Z at the end. Mm-hmm. And I grew up very strict to hyphenate and include it. We always it just got put it in all the papers, all those SAT scantrons. Oh, that's that's the out. Ecuadorian connection. Right. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's very important in its way, although sublimated. And uh, very often I just try to save it. For all right, well, you can tell the whole story. But first I want to just let the listeners know that you all are right. the author of Cannabis Hasidus. The Ancient and Emerging Torah of Drugs, which is about the um, <laughs> the, uh, the sort of um, Hasidic hippie subculture and uh, making the, the thesis that cannabis use is something which is deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in, uh, in, in Jewish and Hebraic culture going all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, a very um, certainly a, a challenging little work, which was published mm. in 2013 by... Autano Media, the anarchist-oriented publishing house in Brooklyn. And uh, you're also uh, a Brooklyn guy at the moment, at least. You've kind of been dividing your time for the past few years between Williamsburg and Israel. Um, Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of crossover. Yeah. It's weird how many of the clothing stores in Israel seem to be selling things that say the word Brooklyn on them. It's a little surreal to me. Yeah, well, of course. Brooklyn is fashionable everywhere. Oh, everywhere. Okay, good. I'm sure. I wonder if there's exceptions, you know, including no. including Manhattan. Let me tell you, even Manhattan. You know, back in the day when I was growing up, people in the outer boroughs thought that Manhattan was the shit. Now right. people in Manhattan think that Brooklyn is the shit. So, ain't it always the way? Well, maybe this is part of the pickle and the problem, but we'll get into that. I think. Yeah. Romance of places as almost the beginning of some colonial transition, because this is this is one of the pickles of. Putting out a word, putting out like a narrative of place being special does invite a certain amount of attention, if not exploitation. And, I, and, and working around that is a great global challenge that we have now and really in a lot of ways have always had. I think. Ah. Well, you just sort yeah. of summed up the whole history of the Jewish people for the past 2000 years and their fixation with this little piece of real estate between the. Uh, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Although it seems like we got the Romans and everyone in Europe involved also very early on. Very early on, like that narrative about that place being important to everybody did affect the entire global conflict in the entire between right. East and, and West. It still does. Largely, and still does. Largely due to an accident of history, which was Christianity evolving from or emerging from Judaism and being taken up as the you know, the major religion of European imperialism, which which essentially conquered the world for a few hundred years. Accident, you say? Yeah, kind of, I think it was kind of an accident. It seems pretty intentional, no? They could have gone with Mithraism. It, Mithraism did not suit their purposes as well as something that related to the this narrative that was already circulated. Like, let's say if you would do 
a story about a, like a, a superhero fighting a bad guy. If you could use Superman, it would probably save you a lot of trouble because he's already famous because he was already there first. You can make up a new one, but it might not have the cachet of relating with the actual character. And I think Jerusalem might have had a sort of quality like that where part of the reason the Romans took it on early on was to resolve and relate to this literary phenomenon that was already uh, a challenge amidst challenges. Because they had dealt with the problem of the of Carthage and Hannibal by digesting their deity. That was what the oracle told the ancient Romans to do, and it was one of the main oh, inroads. Which, which deity are you referring to? The, um, the oracle at Delphi. Oh, yeah. They went to Delphi. Well, you, you remember the story? Like, the Romans have this huge, frustrating war with Carthage. Right, the Punic and everyone else. War. Right, they had a huge war with there were other two, people, too. First and Second Punic uh, War. Uh, you got to have at least two major wars in a, a war, you know. Right, but I don't war. think that the, uh, the the Oracle of Delphi was more of a Greek thing than a Carthaginian thing, was it? You'd think so, yeah, although think so. the Romans got into it. The Romans totally relied on it to make decisions at a certain point. Right, they but, did they, go... but they, they could have took it from the Greeks because as far as the Romans were concerned, like, you know, the Greeks were the shit and they were always, like, intimidated by the Greeks. I don't right. think they particularly uh, appropriated the culture of the Carthaginians who they conquered. On the contrary, they sort of imposed their culture on them. Sort of. Although, on the other hand, they imported the Magna Mater from Turkey to come and in not just in a sort of mock way where it's like, oh, yeah, we're all Magna Materists. No, they hired the prince who, from Turkey at the time who was on their side because Rome was helping them against other conflicts. In the same way, Rome found a way into Judea because they were helping Judea against the Seleucids and the That's Greeks. Right. So similarly they had some kind of relationship where they could import the entire cult from Turkey. Now, both Greece and Rome right, had a the, romance about this well, cult. First of all, what's the Magna Mater, the Great Mother? I'm this not, is a very deep mystery, yeah, right? Kibble. Kibble. Oh, yeah, Cibele. I, yeah, how yeah, do you yeah, pronounce yeah. that? Cibele? Cibele. I mean, in Italian, in the Roman Cibele. world, it was Cibele. Yeah, it, yeah. it occurred to me that, like, let's say the word Kabbalah is a similar root for, like, the vessel. Hmm, one wonders. Um, well, because the, the ancient primordial oceanic mother... Embodied to some degree as chaos, but as the respectable chaos. She's a consort to Dionysus. And and the cultic center they built for her in Italy, in like what's in, in the Iolina so like like triad, is Liber, Libra, and Persephone. Which Libra being the Magna Mater. Libra being utterly identified with Kibble as like the as the because otherwise, don't they have every goddess in the Roman pantheon already? The only let's say you said something interesting. The Romans thought the Greeks were the shit. Not exactly. The Romans defeat the Greeks. They think the Greeks are like like effet sort of scholars. Eh, forget about it. But they are into co-opting and digesting all the systems. That is the triumph of Hellenistic syncretism, which the Maccabees also get totally into, and Judaism is totally expression of, much like Early Islam is also just recognizes that as the science and the process by which you come to any kind of intelligent digestion of the skills and tools. Oh, well, this is more what we want to talk about, actually. Right. This is kind of a tangent from the Carthaginians. Kind of. and, well, well, it's part of why um, they do. They, the Carthaginians they, were not in what we now call Turkey, which, right. of course, back then was not Turkey. Right. right the Turks right. hadn't arrived in, right. in that part of the world. The yet, oracle but, tells the Romans um, if they want to defeat the Turks, they have to get the old well, not religion the for them. The, right. the Turks weren't around yet. The Turks were still like hadn't arrived there for you know hundreds right. of years. Not the yet. Turks. That is anachronistic. It's yeah. true. It's true. Although the beginning of history is that great war with that area against those people, well, even though it's uh, not the same people at all. You're right. Absolutely, Mongols are not Persians. It's absolutely. Well, this correct. wasn't this wasn't the Mongols either. Turks aren't Mongols. I thought the Turks were Mongols. 
Hatha Turks are basically Mongols. No, am I wrong about this? This you is are, what we're wrong about. Okay, that. okay, okay. Go on. The Turk. There's this confusion in. First of all, we're jumping ahead a couple of centuries here. There's this right. confusion in the popular mind because the, the Turks and the Mongols sort of made an alliance with each other. They are not the same people. But they were not actually the same people. No. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, or not. Not even the Turks proper that we speak of today, as in Turkey, but the Turkic peoples of Central Asia, the so-called Tartars, uh-huh. made an alliance with the Mongols. When they, you know, attacked Europe, but that was like what, four hundred years after the fall of Rome, right? Yeah. Exactly, and and they didn't complete like so. The the oral history I picked up in Jerusalem was that part of the whole thing that happened, part of the general migration of a lot of things from, including buckwheat, including cannabis to whatever degree in antiquity, from the steppes of the plateaus over right, there. Right, right. Everything came out of the, the steppes of Central Asia. Specifically yeah. through the Mongols, who eventually did take on Islam as a way of just relating to the rest of the Well, the, of the Tartars world. took on Islam. The Mongols didn't, or some of the Mongols did. The Mongols who, who conquered uh, what what's now uh, Iraq and Persia and stayed there, mm. the Ilkhans, uh, and so on. They uh, they may have adopted Islam. And the Tartars were not those Mongols. Uh, well, they sort of you know they were kind of hanging out together, but uh, right <clears throat> they weren't exactly the same people. The Tartars conquered Russia. Were the Tartars European? Were they no like, no, no. The, the Tartars were a Central Asian Turkic people, Surf. and all of this was preceded. I mean, you know, there was wave after wave over the centuries of peoples who came out of Central Asia, and uh, you know attacked Europe. And the very, very earliest of them, in fact, were the early Greeks, the so-called Dorians. Oh. So they're, they're, they were the very earliest of them. And later, the, the, the Italic peoples, who later established the Roman Empire, centuries later, were also among them. The Celts were also among them. Right. The Illyrians, who are now the Albanians, were also among them. Oh. One, one of, and then uh, uh, one of the very, at the very tail end of the Roman Empire, what we now call the Huns, uh, also, were that uh, they were like among the very last to threaten Rome and, and the the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, which outlived the Western Empire, of course. Oh. So that was, uh, and then you know, a couple of centuries after that, the Huns and the Mongols were probably more or less the same people. I really, think, but they had they, Ooh, they, they had a dip, they had a different name because they were several centuries apart. But I think they were probably more or less the same people. Wow. So then, and then you know, the Mongols were the last. People to come out of central, but yeah, so cannabis probably entered Europe probably with the Scythians, right? The Holy Scythians, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. who were Scythians. one of the very early, you know, Central Asian people who uh, the Greek writer Herodotus wrote about. He the, the first mention in the Western canon, so to speak, of cannabis and cannabis and the canon was um, the canon was, was, was right. Herodotus, who was also the, the, the believed to be like the first historian. You know, who actually wrote a real history of? Um, ah, I'm I'm struck by the delicacy of how you frame that. Believed to be, as opposed to like just taking for granted that he is the first historian, right? Because right. uh, of course I'm hedging everything because what do we know exactly? Well, right, it was all thousands of years ago. It is tragic but that we don't have the parallel. The, o- the only I mean, he wrote the he, well, he wrote the history of the of the Persian Wars, the, the wars between Greece and, and Persia, right? And uh, in all in all of his travels, he. Um, uh, you know, he also encountered the Scythians who were, you know, the nomadic Central Asian people. And he's the one who actually wrote about, you know, they, they've got this herb and they take the buds and they, and they throw it on the fire when they're in their sweat lodge and, and the vapor fills the, um, fills the yurt and they all, you know, uh, right. have a really good time and right. jump around and become drunk, like from wine. Exactly. Language, yeah, yeah. Something to that effect. You know, yeah. Right. And Herodotus is also the first one in a lot of ways to, 
try to describe how the conflict between East and West happens. He really gives it a very deep, like, uh, on the one hand, he demythologizes the the kidnapping of Io and Europa to say that Persia and Greece had a bad habit of kidnapping each other's princesses. Io was Persian, or uh, Europa was Persian and Io was Greek. And and right on the shores over there on Joppa in Lydia, along the sort of like uh, Syria-Palestina, along the sort of water there, is where those conflicts tended to start. Is is the sort of like like they'd come with some boats, try to sell some things, and then just take some princesses and run. And it's well, not according a- to the the as I recall my Greek mythology, and when mm-hmm. you're going back to Europa, this isn't really history; it's mythology. Until Herodotus tries to make a historicized well, version of it. Histor- Herodotus doesn't mention the sort of the, the Zeus thing. He says mm-hmm. the Zeus thing is just a euphemism. Oh yeah, okay. For- well, maybe you're more uh, up to speed on your Herodotus than I'll I tell am, you why. But- I read my daughter Herodotus as a bedtime oh, literature because I needed go. reference because I, I suffer from growing up in um, Orthodox Judaism, which the sense of history in it and the sort of uh, a presumption of historical correctness in it sometimes made it hard for us to realize that the uh, any of the other historical narratives going back for a long time, that is the sort of damning conceit in it. I mean, I can imagine growing up with Herodotus as the only history and then not really having a sense of what's going on in the world also. And and this is really the heartbreak of lack of well, historical the, but perspective. The, the mythological version, which, if memory serves, probably right. goes back to Ovid, <clears throat> uh-huh. but I'm not sure. But in any event, the mythological version is that, you know, Europa was uh, originally in what's now Lebanon, the Levant. Oh. So it was probably a Phoenician or a Persian right. or something like that. Yeah. And was, you know, abducted by Zeus and brought across the sea to Greece and established, you know, the first colonies in Greece, for the first human habitation in Greece. And of course, she's where the, the word Europe comes from. So it's very interesting. And Whoa. this says a lot about how the Greeks actually viewed the world, that, you know, the, the word for Europe comes from a mythological figure who was actually born in what we now call the Middle East. Right. So and, Her and, brother and the, is the one who gives the name. So the, 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 the Greeks very, very much saw, you know, their culture as coming from the south part of the Mediterranean. They, they, they looked up, just like the right. Romans looked to the Greeks as the shit. The Greeks looked to the Egyptians and the Phoenicians as the shit right. and emulated them and thought that their culture actually derived from them. Right. Yeah. Right. A Black Athena. Yeah. Black Athena. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That, stuff's, that stuff's real. Yeah, great book. So a lot of my follow-up to Cannabis Chasidus has actually been trying to explore this in the context of global media perspective. I've been working on something called Pop Cartoon Kabbalah for the last little while, um, which just tries to look at symbolic recreations and patterns because there's histories but histories have a nasty habit of really functioning as mythologies like the the stories that do get um, selected from histories to become sort of recurring mythic narratives that survive from medium to medium like Alexander the Great Survives Greece by quite a while, as far as as far as a romantic story figure. So does Julius well, Caesar. Well, today, I today mean, they just made a movie about him. What a decade ago! Yeah, so. a really a pretty good movie. I thought it was terrible. Yeah, you didn't like it. Yeah. Oh man, I thought it was interesting. They did they do, but it had a lot to do with his conflict, the romance of the conqueror, and the sort of fundamental shift that happens when they get there. Because Europe, Europe is named by Europa's brother, who has a very very Philippine sounding name. Kadmos. It literally right, means yes. the original. Yeah. It literally means the original thing in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, hmm. and all those sort of Semitic languages. Hmm. Hmm. And he is the one they attribute the acquisition of written language and the alphabet to. Also, again, giving a Phoenician origin to the beginning of language on a certain level, not spoken language, which is you know pretty natural, but like written words, a phonetic, phonetic language, um, attributed right away. Because I say one of the one of the issues with Thelemic Kabbalah, which is very popular as sort of the main secular Kabbalah nowadays, 
is the impulse to try to attribute everything to the Greeks because the Greeks aren't a problem anymore politically. So attributing Kabbalah's origin to the Greek syncretism and just, you know, well, the, the Greeks are it. actually a big problem politically today because I mean, there's going to, there's, right. That's what, ah, touche. <clears throat> Let's talk about the Greeks today. Hanukkah's coming up. Bear with me. Never too early for Hanukkah. The Hanukkah story is a lot about the imperialism problem, right? Hellenism and the Greeks had a great model and they sort of dicked it up by trying to impose it too aggressively. And this is still the curse of liberalism to this day. Like the Maccabees are terrible in so many ways. And and they're the bad guys in the rest of the story from then on. Um, but they wind up sympathetic because these other people come with a condescending presumption of what their enlightenment should be. And that never works. This is the main conflict between sort of best case scenario enlightened European imperialism and oh well the, the Maccabees were sort of a uh, they were rebellion against the Greek ruling class right or isn't it really Greek no they were they were a rebellion against the Seleucid right ruling who, class. who were Greek who were Hellenized they, they, well very, very Hellenized very I mean, Hellenized probably, probably the actual ruling elite the upper upper crust of the Seleucids were, were Greek I mean they were the inheritors of were the they? empire of Alexander who was, who was actually so. Greek amongst them Antiochus is not Greek. Antiochus maybe had like a great great grandfather, but that's not even his born name. He was born with the name Mitridates, yeah. which is the same or, well, name. Very, as the very Hellenized in any event, right? right. Very and, Hellenized. But but how how big? Because let's say how different is Hellenism back then from secularism now, where we're all very modern. If we grow up speaking a modern language and in a modern context, listening to modern songs, it's very natural for all of us to take on the sort of uh, basic moral conceits of modernity because they're just part of media. And that's always been a little bit part of why the fundamentalist reaction is avoid media. Like in Judaism, part of the fundamentalist reaction to um, Hellenism and all the early versions of Enlightenment that sort of demanded maybe stepping out of the paradigm of assuming, forget about literalism, even just inherent relevance of your family, native, communal narrative over the global one, uh, was just to avoid it. Avoid the global narrative. Someone yes, made it, satirize I, it, make I jokes. Have, I have, you know, Orthodox friends who are still very much into this mentality. And it's the main thing. Yeah. It's the I, main I way to avoid. It's, it's very dangerous. Go on. I think it's what dangerous. is the danger? I believe you. What, what is the danger? Is the danger, the yeah, danger yeah. of, you know, uh, you know, cutting yourself off from, from the world and viewing the entire outside world as the enemy. And, right. Uh, and you know, and being completely insular and just living in your own little bubble, you don't think that's dangerous? I, I think it's pretty dangerous. I believe you. I'm curious. I believe you. And, and, it's, and, and, and apropos, I'm apropos of what we're talking about, you know, because right. um, we're getting a tangent after tangent after tangent here. But uh, you know, I mean, they sort of you know looked to the Maccabees, who were you know sort of wanted to retreat from the you know the globalized Hellenic world, right? And you know, and assert their own. Um, you know their own uh, Hebrew culture, right? Just and, just to keep doing the thing you're doing, isn't and, that the curse? And, 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 the, and the, the sort of the assumption, you know, um, has always been from you know beginning with uh, probably uh, beginning. Well, Martin Bernal, the author of, of Black Athena, oh. argues that it began in the 18th, 19th century. You know, people you know viewed um, you know Greek culture as um, as something which was. Um, uh, which uh, was the foundation of of European culture and was something which you know existed sort of in opposition to you know Hebrew Semitic cultures on the other side of the Mediterranean, including the Egyptians, uh, right? Including and the Egyptians, including the Egyptians, right? as opposed to Greek syncretic identity identifying with the Egyptians. 
which you could definitely argue they were. I mean, the proof that they were. Right, no, no, but that, that's his thesis. That, right. That's Martin Bernal's thesis. He's repudiating right. that whole, uh, you know, 19th century, uh, you know, view of... of uh-huh, uh, Europe versus Jerusalem. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And he's right. saying that, in fact, you know, the, that's not how the Greeks saw themselves. Clearly. That's not right. how the Greeks saw themselves. Not at all. Okay. Or else they wouldn't okay. have used to, it alphabet. Today, beginning with the, um, with the philologists of the 18th, 19th century... People began to realize that, you know, Greek was uh, linguistically related to Sanskrit and all these languages came out of came out of um, Central Asia and that the, the very earliest Greeks, the Dorians, actually, you know, they were nomadic people who came from the north and they settled the Greek peninsula uh, and, and they're, they're Indo-European people, quote unquote, Aryan people, not related to the, uh, you know, the Semitic and African cultures across the Mediterranean. Right, or Coptic or whatever. Yeah. So that, that he, and he's arguing that, uh, okay, to, that, that, that may in fact be true in terms of the actual, you know, linguistic origin of, of the earliest Greeks, but that's not where their culture came from. Right. Okay, their, their culture came from hundreds of years of contact with the people from across the Mediterranean. Right. And in fact, even if the Greeks were in error about, you know, their actual... geographic origins as a people, they thought that they came from from across the Mediterranean. They looked up to, uh, you know, to, to, to the Egyptians and the Phoenicians as being the shit. Right. And then they thought that because their, a lot of their culture actually came from there, you know, a lot of their, you know, I mean, their, their mathematics and their architecture and all, Everything. all that, all that stuff actually, they actually learned, including by the way, the written word, I mean, the, the, the what we now call the Roman alphabet comes from the Greek alphabet, which was initially developed on uh, on uh, on was it Crete or Cyprus? I think it was Crete. I heard right? Crete. Minoan culture, the Minoan sure, culture. Sure, that's sure. Crete, yeah, Crete. Uh, and they in turn got it from Demotic, which was the popular script, which developed from uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. So you know the language, the, the actual written language that we use, it, which came to us from the Romans, who got it from the Greeks, who got it from the Minoans. God, they the Minoans got it from the Egyptians, right? right? So so it all goes back to Egyptian hieroglyphics. It all goes back to the. You know, th- so this is what Martin Bernal is arguing in Black Athena, uh-huh. which right? validates Herodotus. Herodotus also his right. main that's source. That's how is the Greeks themselves viewed it. I mean, right. you know, Martin Bernal, you know, he's considered to be a, a quote unquote revisionist. Uh, but he is actually going back to the original Greek sources, and he's actually documenting how the Greeks, in fact, viewed their own culture, right? right which is all. I mean, I think of uh, similar revisionists in like classic Israel, similar kind of thing. I mean, that's one of the Jabotinskyist trips that winds up enduring and winds up uh, overcoming the labor left. It's something very similar. Let's instead of overcoming our narrative with the objective, correct outside narrative. Uh, I mean, this is where it dips into nationalism. This is where nationalism becomes, and even beyond just nationalism, um, the jaunty version of capitalism that frames itself as localized empowerment. Let's just do our own thing, what we've been doing. Um, This is one of the main definitions and sort of virtues and problems in nationalism. And I think a a fun question I wanted to raise with you guys today was, is there a good nationalism or is the problem completely inherent? That's because a, That's a very complicated question. Well, yeah. I figure you're the guy to ask. Well, I mean, I did uh, a whole podcast rant about this very question a, co- a few podcasts ago. Right. Actually. <clears throat> I think it was called Paradoxes of Anarchism and Nationalism. Right. <clears throat> but uh, I wanted, before we get okay, to okay, that, okay, okay, okay. okay. So if I wanted to, you would tell us a little bit about your book, Cannabis Hasidus, The Ancient and Emerging Torah of Drugs. Okay, yeah. yeah. I'll preface it with saying part of the pr- pickle 
with marijuana today. And because it used to be we were inherently subversive progressive by smoking weed. Remember right. the days? Yeah, 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 it was like yeah, yeah. as soon as you did Those that, were the days, right? you were just you are now on this on team revolution, yeah. and you're like clearly like neither, uh, and that shifted it sure profoundly. Has. And yes. and and there was evidence kind of, of the downside on. of legalization, paradoxically. Kind of, yeah, exactly. In large part, in large part, yeah. and then there's the supplanting of cannabis internationalisms, which is starting to happen in Israel. Bibi's last ditch at legitimacy was go full pro weed. Can't control the courts. The courts are liberals. I can't do that. But we really like weed for classical sort of indigenous religious reasons. This is Bibi's yeah, push. We, this is how he incorporated Faglin. Had his wife do interviews on like the cooking shows where she just throws out there, boy, weed sure is good. I wish we had more medicinal or Faglin, Moshe Faglin. Moshe Faglin. Bibi. Tell us about him. Okay, so yeah, this is an interesting example of sort of cannabis nationalism in the context of Judaism. Because one of the pickles, it, one of the virtues of that I appreciate as a kid, a lot of what this book is about, is the dispensation I deeply appreciate as a kid to have a certain amount of autonomous space from the capitalist, imperialist narrative in the context of the family religion. And, I, and it's one of the things I deeply appreciate about um, the respect accorded religion in the world. It's a huge pickle in the Enlightenment context because religion is bullshit, right? But on the other hand, and this is an ancient Roman imperial condition that allowed them to be a global thing. Going back, I think, I mean, let's, I'm just going to go back to the Alexander question for just one second. It's a mystery how much of cosmopolitan empire started from Alexander. I think the popular consensus is no. goes back at least to Koresh, Cyrus. Well, well, yes. The, the, right. the, the Persians actually kind of um, invented the global system. They were re- the, the first real multinational empire in human history. Right. Alex- whatever. And Alexander right. took it over, and you know. I'm glad we agree about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dul Karnaim in the Quran is probably Koresh and not Alexander, because Dul Karnaim is a Muslim. Hmm. You remember this story? Muhammad has given three things to ask the well, rabbis. Well, Cyrus was not a Muslim. He existed years before Islam, of course, uh, many centuries. Koresh is totally a Muslim in the same sense that Ibrahim and Dawid and Solomon. The, the idea of, a, uh, let's, let's say whatever it means to call someone a Muslim before Muhammad means yeah, something yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, monotheism, means well, something like yeah. the devotion. No, I mean, uh, uh, to the degree that they could ever claim anyone like that, it's definitely easier to claim Koresh and Zoroastrians as Right, they were kind Muslims. of a, yes, 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 yes. I think that's part of why they didn't destroy any of the old Zoroastrian art until like ISIS came along and decided to be like even more hardcore. Right. Now we're than talking about was. ISIS, the Islamic State, not right. ISIS, the Greek goddess. The, right. Did you call her a Greek goddess? That's ironic. I'm sorry. No, no, you're saying exactly. good. Egyptian goddess. If but, you add an but, S at the end, she's Greek. If you call it Iset, if you pronounce it in like proper Coptic, if, if it's like right. If you say Horus, it's Greek. If you say her. Or something. She was basically the same goddess as Gaia. Hero. Again, you know, the Greeks got a lot of their stuff from Egypt. Well, the Egyptian version was ISIS. The Greek version was Gaia. Let's talk about Forgive this. Me. Part of the innovation of but the Hellenistic know, we're, model we're, we're is tangent after isolating. tangent after tangent. Here. Very related. We were, we were talking about Israeli politics. Okay, Moshe right. Faglin was, you know, this. Um, uh, member of the Knesset from, you know, far-right member of the Knesset. We've the, been from, reaching out to him for a while. From the Likud party. Yeah, yeah, who yeah. Who sort of, you know, took up cannabis to try to get all these, like, what, right-wing Israeli stoners on, on board with his program? To get the people on board. And then he to was... To get the kids on board. Exactly. And it, and yeah, it yeah, only yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of worked. And then it's... It, it, it worked enough that... Um, that uh, Bibi Netanyahu sort of adopted his program to a certain right. extent. At least the public extent. face of it, yeah. His so, Yair so they, is a huge stoner. 
I know a lot of people who smoke weed with him a lot. Yair Netanyahu is the biggest, most public fascist, I'd say, in Israeli Twitter. I can't think of anyone overtly being fascist like Yair Netanyahu is. Bless his heart. He's a huge stoner, and somehow this is not a problem for him. Well, Julia Savola I, made I it don't cool. bless his heart. Well. What, Moshe Feiglin? No, no, no. Yair Netanyahu. Oh, bless Moshe Feiglin's heart. He is a sweetheart. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, fine. Bless right, nobody's so, heart. So who, who is Yair Netanyahu? Maybe it's dangerous to talk about your Netanyahu. No, go ahead. Maybe it's dangerous and irresponsible. No, Bibi, no, no, go ahead. Bibi Netanyahu has a son, very publicly, uh, further overtly fash than even his dad, as far as as far as rhetoric, as far as Twitter feed, as far as like that kind of thing. Um, huge stoner, smokes weed all the time. Well, isn't that strange? But apparently not. And and you have this in neo-fascist revisionist thought, going back to Julius Evola, right? And, and Crowley to whatever degree, to whatever degree that there's a sort of ecstatic, uh, uh, self-indulgent Dionysian tendency within fascisms we, because they are nationalisms, because all fascisms swing towards nationalistic because they do want to reinforce traditional structures. And to the degree that one of the secret initiatory trips within noble cultures is this drug thing. I mean, let's say Zoroastrianism, right? Uh, a lot of Chris Bennett's great work, Save Us From Religion, by pointing out how much the cultic origin of all religion is marijuana, specifically. I mean, Chris I'll, Bennett? Yeah, you know Chris Bennett? He's one of the great cannabis historians, arguably the main one. What did he He's write? He's in Vancouver. Uh, he wrote Libra 420 most recently, but like Cannabis in the Bible. He's been writing for a while. I like his stuff. He, uh, I don't agree with every single theory he has, but like uh, one of oh, the yeah. most... I, yeah. I, I've been meaning to read this. Take your time. Cannabis it's very long. and the Soma Solution it's by very Chris thorough. Bennett. Yeah, so yeah, in yeah, there, yeah, he argues... Because let's say yeah. Allegro and Wasan, forgive me for throwing shorthand, the, uh, the fundamental psychedelic sacrament of Zoroastrianism contrasted with the Greek one in Eleusium, they're both into a psychedelic sacrament, and it's a question if Of course, we don't, we don't actually know what, what any of this stuff really was. It's all speculation. It's all speculation, exactly. Um, he makes anyway, a strong again, argument. tangent after tangent, because we, we keep... Bringing, all the related, we, we, related. We keep, yes, related, that's what tangents mean, but we, uh-huh. we, we keep on branching off. With, uh-huh. anyway, finally, uh, what, uh, Israel, what, last year, passed a medical marijuana bill. Which was with the support of um, of Prime Minister Netanyahu. They keep passing things and they keep not really changing things. Right, isn't exactly. That, so isn't that interesting. So, so Netanyahu they, sort of made a pretense, I would say, of of um, of adopting, uh, you know, of trying to uh, you know, right. su- support cannabis. But in fact, this medical marijuana bill they passed is very limited, and right. it's got a sunset clause, like De Blasio, and it's got a sunset clause. Right. Now, I was even even more so than De Blasio. Even more so than De Blasio, yeah. right? Right. Well, but you tell me, I haven't been to Israel. You, um, you, you've been there. The street, I mean, the I, street I, enforcement I, has changed. The street enforcement. Oh, so the upside to a police state is they don't have to enforce anything if they don't want to. That's the old. That's the old model from like like the imperial Asian model. Everything is illegal. Don't enforce anything unless you want to. So they appreciate how much you don't enforce. You can get anybody for anything and take down dissidents whenever you want. Now, a proof that I experienced for that Israel's policy is changing even in an official way, is that they arrested me and my friends and put us in jail for a little while. There you go. Over so, petty bullshit, so you, over you, little you, things. You spent time in an Israeli jail. Yeah, I did four and a half months at the end of 2016. Uh, for what? Uh, selling to a friend three times. I'll tell you how they roll over there. And selling I don't know cannabis, much, I Selling assume. cannabis, yeah. nothing but cannabis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did try to pretend it was hypericum at one point. That What's was that? Claim. It's another illegal herb. Oh? It's like, it's good for hypertension. What Russians is it called? It. Hypericum. Never heard of it. Um, it must have some other name. Hmm. It must have some kind of Western European name. Hmm. Um, 
the, the arresting officer, like when I said I was selling it, is like, well, what is it? And he's like, it's another illegal herb. And he's like, why is it illegal? I was like, well, why is cannabis illegal? Ha, 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 ha. But they do more arrests near the end of Prohibition. That's always been the rule. The end of the Holocaust, the end of Prohibition, that's when they try to get in all their points because they're running out of time. So they might as well just try to get those hours, get those like, like dots on the list of things you did before you don't count them anymore. Um, so that's a sign that the thing is changing, just even in terms of like they don't necessarily feel like they can keep – because Canada's prohibition fundamentally is about controlling dissidents. This has been true since at least the 50s, the 40s. As much as early reefer madness was about racism, second stage reefer madness is about isolating dissidents and keeping them from being legitimized because right. you can arrest well, them. Right. Well, I mean Nixon was very explicit about this in the Watergate tapes. Yeah. Yeah, but both racism and – you know, yeah, stigmatizing yeah, yeah. the anti-war movement and the hippies, both. Was that a thing before Nixon? Who was enforcing cannabis stuff before Nixon? I mean, was Lyndon Johnson? Was, like, JFK? Well, I mean, we both know that it goes back to Harry Anslinger and Reefer Madness in the 1930s. Right. But let's say there's, there's, a, there's a transition between that campaign just to shut down the jazz singers and keep the Mexicans from coming and the thing, the way it starts being applied federally, and and, I, and that's a little bit dissonant to me. I don't, I don't know the history of that exactly of when they, when the use of the prohibition sort of switches. I don't know how much of that was a steady thing the whole time, or how well, much Nixon there was a... up the, Nixon up the ante a great deal, of oh. course, and then Reagan did again after right. that. Right, 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 right. Reagan rescued it, right, in order just. I mean, to there keep was it an, obviously in many ways, not just with cannabis, but you know, with our you know culture in general, there was you know kind of this big loosening up in the 1960s, and then there was the first backlash with Nixon, right. and then things loosened up a little bit after Nixon uh, in the late 70s under Carter, and then, right. you know, we had the second big backlash with Reagan, which we still haven't recovered from. Right, and Wouldn't it was one agree? of the ways we could tell that the Clintons were not on our team and that Obama was on our team is how little they did to change that. Obama did a little, but he was so condescending about it early on, and that was one of the big signs that maybe he's not on our side, you know? Well, uh, degree. it's it's again, this is a complicated question. It's a question of degree, and it depends, sure. on, and it depends on how you define our side. I mean, right. ulti- ultimately, right. ultimately, I'm an anarchist, right? So I don't, think any, I don't think any of these politicians are on my side or are on our side. Fair enough. Right? You... Like, all of them are ultimately, you know, about shoring up the capitalist system, which right. is ultimately completely oppressive and is driving us towards ecological apocalypse. But, I, right. but, but given that we live under capitalism for the moment and the prospects for, you know, immediately overthrowing it and ushering in, you know, eco-anarchist utopia do not look particularly promising. Right. Uh, you know, I would rather have a, um, a sleazeball politician who is playing to me and my friends rather than a sleazy a sleazeball politician who's playing to my worst enemies like Donald Trump. Thank Hashem. you very much. Right, I'm with her. Thank you very much. I hear you. I agree, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and this is part of the crisis, I think, in a lot of the popular heart and ethos of uh, everyone, but specifically the Jews. There's a bit of a bifurcation amongst the Jews nowadays over which of the fundamental priorities they should be identifying with. And it's all sort of stupid. And a lot of the tradition is to not trust any of these people, obviously. But there's such an impulse to feel like there is someone who's on your side. Because I think the other half of it, the other side of it, I, uh, you, we're, we're all very frustrated with like Assad apologists, Turkey apologists, Russia apologists, on the left especially, because we were hoping the left was going to be about social justice and defensive rights. But there's such a strong will to hope that there are powerful forces that are on our side. And I think that I have to correct myself, by the way, I have to correct myself. I was just checking my notes. Go for it. 
the medical marijuana law in Israel was actually like at least 10 years ago. Yeah. The, 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 what, what, what Bibi did is he decriminalized under pressure from, uh, from Moshe Feiglin. Not legalized, but decriminalized. Not even just, that. Yeah, even yeah. that. I mean, even that, that every that, year. That's, and, and that's also, it's, um, it's much more limited. It's got, it's got a sunset clause. It ends in a couple of years, whereas the medical right. marijuana bill did not. Israel's had medical marijuana for a while. Israel right. really, Israel has the highest just per capita rate. I just need to read that correction into the record. I appreciate it. How important is it to shit on Israel? How important is it to defend Israel? Ha, 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 ha. Israel's medicinal marijuana thing well, has I, been going you know, for a while. I, 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 yeah, I, I believe you. in going where, where, you know, the facts take you, okay? Uh, you know? Yeah, as opposed to like some kind of like responsibility to polemical sensitivity or something. I think this is part of where people get weird, but I hear you. Um, facts... Facts are pretty important. It's hard to I'm talk about them. I'm a big fan of facts myself. I hear you. That's just me. What can I tell you? Pro-facts. <clears throat> strong, taking a strong pro-fact position. All right. So uh, on the question of facts, can I, uh, you know, can I get to the, the kind of the difficult points that I wanted to get yes, to? Yes, please. About yeah. your book? Tangential. Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Well, you've got, a, um, you've got a chapter in your book. Your book, once again, Cannabis Hasidus, the ancient and emerging Torah of drugs. Okay, before I, before I get to the um, to my critical point here, why don't you tell us what the title means? What does, if I'm pronouncing it correct, Hasidus? Uh, what what does it mean? I'll what, start what with you, that one. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I specifically gave the book sort of that name so that word would become normative in the subculture in the way Kabbalah is, which is to say... It's different from Kabbalah. Hasidus, I define it there as a tendency within religions to find ways to become better. And it's a recurring tendency going back a long time. There's a specific movement in the 1800s calling itself the Hasidic movement from which all these sort of fundamentalist groups sort of descended in a tragic way. Um, right, but it's a recurring tendency. The, the Hasidic movement in Poland of Baal Shem Tov, and um, that, that makes it sound a lot smaller than it was. It took it well, got it started, pretty wide It started fast. in Poland. Ukraine, Medjibuzh, is yeah. Medjibuzh in Poland? I mean, there's a lot of back and forth back then between what's Poland and what's like something Anyway, else. it was kind of a uh, both reformist and at the same time, uh, you know, ecstaticist and revivalist right. movement within uh, Judaism, which gave birth to, you know, all the different Hasidic uh, tendencies which still exist today, the Lubavitchers right. and the Satmars and so on. Right, fundamentally justifies them despite all of their alienation from its core priorities. Justifies who? All those sects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All those right. sects. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do they, how, what, why do they, it's one of the big classic Freudian questions of enlightenment. How do those people stay so religious when you have enlightenment option? And the answer is if you have something funner going on than enlightenment, you're never going to want to secularize. It's one of the tricks. It's one of the, it's one of the tricks also, I think, of Christian fundamentalism and Islamic fundamentalism. If you have something genuinely more wonderful going on than any parties at the universities, then you'll never want to give that up. And to the degree that uh, people and communities and religions want to perpetuate themselves, even on the personal, localized, uh, personal level, even as much as those things become euphemisms for me and the people I love and people I'm close to who sing songs with me and who I speak my language, um, as much as they can justify themselves in the face of enlightenments is how much they can survive. Okay. <clears throat> So uh, that's you've explained something about uh, right. the, the Hasidus part. Now, how does yeah, that, Hasidus that, is better Torah. Hasidus what? is when Torah finds a way to be genuinely better than it's been, and it has been part of the development of Torah forever. They use that word in the Talmud to describe how the people who used to take a couple hours to just pray, take an hour before praying just to sort of get in the right zone, and take an hour afterwards just to sort of like transition. 
it, it, it a lot of how it is explained in in modern orthodoxy is just you know, doing extra stuff you don't have to do. All right, and you are arguing that the early Hasids would get into that, you know, special state uh, an hour before the prayers in a, a particular way, hence um, cannabis Hasidus. Have I got that right? I think that's fair, but I would argue even further. I would argue that cannabis is there every time there's a Hasidic revival because cannabis triggers uh, shifting of priorities. Or it's every time. Every time. The, there's a medieval one, the Hasidic Ashkenaz. That one was a little darker. That was a rough time. Medieval medieval mysticisms sure get dark. Um, and, and that then, one was and more then, fasting and there was, based. And there was one before that in, there the, was, uh, uh, in the late uh, Roman period, right? Well, that's the one I'm talking about. That's the one that the early rabbis and early Judaism refers to, although that extends. I mean, by the early Roman period or by the by the by the time Josephus is talking about the the war with Judea, that's not one of the sects anymore. The sects have split into other priorities, um, whatever you would call a mystical subculture. Then it was not called the Hasidim. Then they're talking about an earlier thing called the Hasidim Rishonim, the people who would just cared about devotion and like to get into it. And again, I don't think it's so hard to make an argument that that was very affected by marijuana specifically in the context of anointing oil and the rabbinic uh, discourse about use of incense as a digestive and processing mechanism leading to wisdom. Rabbi Shmuel is one of the early transitional figures between the pre-Maccabean priesthood and the pharisaical anti-Maccabee movement. He says, wine and spices made me wise specifically while talking about incense. There's also a story about the I'm moment... Sorry, who, who said that? Rabbi Ishmael. What a funny name for a Jewish rabbi, huh? Rabbi Ishmael. Uh-huh. Back then, they were still calling their kids Ishmael. This was where? Strongly. This was where? This is in Palestine. This is in Jerusalem. Uh-huh. This is in... In, in, uh, what, uh, in what period are we talking about here? Um, it's a little unclear, but before Alexander. Before, way back then. Not even so long before Alexander. So not so far back then, but it's like... Uh, or shortly after Alexander, but before... For the whole Roman thing takes off because he there is still an active priesthood and the priesthood hasn't bifurcated into uh, Sadducees versus Pharisees because a lot of the uh, mythic accomplishment of Alexander in Jerusalem was to begin the valorization of wise men as the main arbiters of divine truth over just fucking prophets and priests, which, you know, prophets are great. Prophets are great, except they don't end the war. They, they'll, they'll tell you something that's very powerful, and then the war keeps going. And the hope of the Pharisees was actually you could use conversation and I think analysis is the wrong word, but let's say willful rereading of prophecies to come to better conclusions that would let you be less of an asshole to each other and not have to die on your sword quite as often. And this is the early Hasidus on a certain level that allows the Pharisees All right, well, to I just help. checked okay. my notes, Go okay? And uh, according to my notes... <clears throat> Uh, okay, you've got the uh, the Hasids that we still know and love today, founded in uh, the 18th century in Poland. And then before Shout that, out to all my Yolis out there. Yoli! Yeah, the the, the um, Haside Ashkenaz, mystical movement of 12th century Germany. Right, weird and dark, a lot of fasting, a lot of... Lot developed of... gematria or numerology. Gematria. Probably influenced Kabbalah. That goes back way before. Gematria is already in like, it's already Talmud. It's already the Mishnaic. And right, well, the Greeks, they, they like, were into the it anyway. Yeah, yeah, they, they were, were into, into it. it anyway. Yeah. And then finally, before that, you had the Hasideans of um, Seleucid Judea, resistance movement against Hellenization and precursor of the Maccabees. Right. Precursor. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Precursor. Okay, that means, and... Mm. Uh... All right. And you think that uh, cannabis was involved in all three of these... Um, 
of these manifestations, many Maybe centuries not the apart. One. I, okay, what do we know about the medieval one? Although a lot of the Templar narrative sure sounds like it has to do a lot. A lot of Chris Bennett's argument about the initiatory stuff in Parsifal and in Jerusalem Templar culture, fundamentally going back to a lot of the Sufi uh, uh, circulation of hashish, um, is certainly part of that version of it. I don't know how well that circulates because a, a lot of the Hasidic Ashkenaz is a little dark to be stony. It could be they're getting high and just like and like and like just well, writing very you can, sad you know, poetry. Well, smoke cannabis and get really paranoid. Believe me, I do yeah, it all the time. Yeah, paranoid, hostile. So. Right, yeah, right, 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 and and find some kind of like fundamental core personal truth through which to um, embrace the paranoia, as those crazy folks in the subway seem to do sometimes. I mean, that is maybe part of the origin of like the Hashashin martyrdoms, you know? Where... Well, yes, famously, yes. Controversially, although controversially, people... but famously, right, <laughs> right. right, right. I mean, exactly. you know, I mean, the the words assassin and hashish are believed to be cognate with an earlier word, asisim, which is a biblical word for the delightful fruit and nut and spices pastry you'd give to the goddess. Oh, Jeremiah is very against hmm. them, but on the other hand, Song of Songs is talking about how your love is like these things, and Song of Songs is one of the overt sources for uh, cannabis as romantic. It's a Kanev uh, Kinamon is like a recurring image in near the middle end of Song of Songs, which ends on a mountain of spices that your love is bigger than. Okay, well, this is one of the first things, not the, the most important one. Right. We'll save that for later. We're getting to right. it. But one of the first things I wanted to, uh, you know, sort of call you out on about um, some of the claims made in your book. Right. Okay, you're, uh, you're arguing. Because you're, you're into facts. I'm into mythologies. Yeah, but yeah. you have to be clear about what's a fact and what is merely, you know, That's poetry fair. or That's mythology. That's fair. Or, or, or just, uh, here's mm. a story we have traditionally. Exactly. That's, that's right. a lot of the space in between. Because yeah. a, right. a lot of, let's say the title of the book, Ancient and Emerging Torah of Drugs, a Memoir, I call it that to save me from having to prove any objective uh, point. Oh, well, for starters, you're, you're using the word Torah in a sense other than uh, the common meaning of the first five books of the Old Testament. Common is strong. I'd argue Torah always meant within the Jews the entire corpus of the entire thing. They use that word to mean... Edu- I was at like a Jack Korn was speaking in like Tel Aviv one time and he, he spoke in Hebrew just on principle and he refers to Torah Tabudism because it's really just a word for any educational priority, anything you're giving over, Hora'ah. Um, and even the whole time, the whole narrative in the entire Torah tradition is that it refers to something before creation that informed all of creation and is floating in the air and... Uh, comes in to reconcile between everyone's misconceptions. But besides that, the entire corpus of the whole literary tradition. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that's written what you, that's, and oral. That's what you mean by right. Torah. Written and sense. oral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Written and oral. Because now it's written. A lot of the skiz, a lot of the silliness in this sort of Judaism's relationship to the idea of written Torah versus oral Torah is writing stuff down about the oral Torah. The okay. beginning of rabbinic Judaism is writing down the oral Torah. And right. it just and keeps you, going. You, uh, uh, this I find plausible enough. You were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, claiming that... Uh, Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement back there in 18th century Poland, uh, liked to smoke the lolka, which is the water pipe. Yeah. And uh, that he would... um, He would... uh, Particularly, he would like to smoke it after the... uh, uh, The Havdalah, the weekly ceremony marking the end of the Jewish Sabbath. Right. And after which he would lax woke... uh, Wax loquacious, as you tend to do. Spinning folk tales with deep religious meaning. Kabbalah, blah blah. All right, that's all quite plausible. Yeah. All right. What I what I'm not so sure about is your claim that um, 
that there was actually a test on his pipe which found traces of cannabis resin. Right. What's your source for that? A dude at a room. Oh, a dude a at A rumor what? floating around a at a I, Chabad of Santa Rosa. I, I had a punch it might have been a rumor. Rather profoundly <clears throat> unsubstantiated. Exactly. Yeah, and I make that clear. Do I make that clear? Well, I describe where I heard it from. Well, you didn't actually. I didn't say where I heard it from. Well, it's been a while since I've read the book. I'm, I'm pretty sure it says Referring back to my moment. review of your book, it's actually been a few years since I read it, but I remember... I. I uh, wrote in my review, which is on my website, Global Ganja right. Report. <clears throat> um, Lieb does not, Lieb, excuse me. Yep. Lieb does not provide a source for his claim that a test on the Patriarch's pipe revealed traces of cannabis resin. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, I don't. And in a certain way, self-consciously, I don't. Because it's part of, let's say, the beginning of Renic Judaism, but the end of Hasidus is writing down the oral tradition. It's one of the crises in the Hasidic tradition is the formalization and a lot of the self-conscious way I was writing the book was as a street rumor. Like a lot of the format I was imagining for them is distribution through like books and things places. Because a lot of the literary paradigms I was coming out of was like beatnik sort of like uh, quick just dropping stuff, hip hop sort of memoir, which was and it still is I think a popular literary platform to just sort of lay out like quote unquote truths, right? And, of course, uh, Hasidic uh, polemical tracts. I tried to sort of uh, – th- those were the main thing, all of which are informed by their sort of counter-academic, almost hostility to objective reality and embrace of mythic narrative as its own sort of uh, effective conceit. Now, um, is that okay? Or is that bad? Is acknowledging that make it okay? Or is it inherently <laughs> well, problematic? Well, I guess, I guess I felt that you insufficiently failed to acknowledge it. Anyway, oh, that's a smaller point. I want to own it right now. That's what I, That's very much to the whole time uh, one of the things I was going for. And one of the problems, I mean, the main, the main thing that makes histories dishonest is the claim that they're being honest. If, if they would just acknowledge that they're biases and they're just sort of like uh, overt propagandic mechanisms – all right, well, but it's a question that. of degree, not fair or, enough. Okay, now, right. I don't believe there's any such a thing as objective history or objective journalism. Worth okay? a try, I suppose. Anything, right? Worth a try, hey. but, but but you have to. A part of being honest about it is is acknowledging that at best it's an ideal which is impossible to com- completely attain. Right. Okay, but there's still there is a difference between legitimate factual history, which you know. Is not. Right. I'm not using the word objective. I'm using the words legitimate factual. and factual. Okay, it's a good word, which is d- distinct from objective. Because as soon as you make any decision at all about what you're going to look at in your history, what you're going to examine, what evidence you're going to bring to bear, you're already making decisions and you're bringing subjectivity to bear. So right. already, it's not objective. It's impossible for a human being to do any kind of academic endeavor. Uh, which is completely objective, just a flat-out impossibility. That okay. sounds objectively true. Thank you. <clears throat> so, uh, but nonetheless, there is a distinction between you know mere propaganda and you know a legitimate history. Are those even if you know you're making choices as to um, as to what material you're going to examine, what facts you're going to you know bring to the table? Well. Is that material factual? Are those facts, you know, actual, real, legitimate, verifiable facts? Or are you actually falsifying things? I mean, this right. is a very, very critical distinction. I'm not accusing you of falsifying It's an important things. one. No, no, no. This I'm is a good one. I'm not accusing you of falsifying I things. I appreciate it. But, but you know, in the, the whole sort of, you know, postmodern critique of objective history, there is a real danger of, you know, throwing out entirely the, the distinction between legitimate history and mere propaganda. Right. And the notion that all history is mere propaganda, 
to me, that's just like a really dangerous, you know, sort of post-truth. Absolutely. Uh, you know. And that's why socialism has a recurgence now is because postmodernism doesn't really give us anything on a certain level except a sort of, well, okay. And the one of the great things about the modern resurgence of socialism these last few years is the kids can feel good about trying to be on, this, on, on team right against team wrong, you know? That's an incredibly important development, and I'm really deeply appreciative for it um, because, yeah, post-truthism – there is something that crosses into nihilism. We're like, oh, nothing's true, whatever, might as well. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's not what I'm going for. I think, I think there's a space in between where the mythic lives between the unverified and the discredited because let's say discrediting might be really important for clarifying away bullshit – and it's all—it's one of the main tools we have for not being under the uh, thrall of problematic narratives. Is you have a narrative like, wait a second, that's clearly untrue, and I and I appreciate that very much. And I think a lot of let's say like biblical historical criticism has been incredibly important for at least pointing out the stuff that is not verifiable. Although it's very popular with archaeological justifications and apologetics, where they say, "See, we found it said this, so at least this part is true." It's like, okay, at least that seems like literally verifiable. But I mean, I, I spend a lot of time with fundamentalists who go very far in the other direction, just to say, "See, because that says that there, therefore the entire narrative is validated, and literal God of Israel came and did all those things literally." And that's, uh, I mean, my main criticism of that is not even that it's verifiably false; it's that it's morally meaningless and is a fundamental failure of learning valid moral lessons. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Uh, Well, this brings us to the difficult question I've been trying to get around to here. Oh, I love difficult questions. You've got a chapter in your book entitled Justifying Israel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want to tell us a little bit what you mean by that? Let's do it. Yeah. Well, it's a bit of a crisis in every direction. Justifying Israel. Yeah. Um, that word is a dirty word in a lot of Which the world word? Now. Justifying or Israel? I would say Israel. Justifying mm-hmm. is still a good word. Everyone loves justifying. Justifying means good by definition. I mean, forgive me for getting to a semantic, just quick, quick, quick addressing of the word justifying. Mm-hmm. In Hebrew and in Arabic, the word implies more to do with making everybody happy than being objectively righteous. Tzedek is the name of Jupiter, and Tzedek means working it out so that everyone's happy. Because the innovation of Jupiter in Greek myth, instead of just sort of like, like you know, insisting on something, is similar to Koresh, similar to Cyrus, giving others authority so everyone's happy, and now there's a stable imperial situation in heaven and earth. So let's say justifying, in a lot of ways, is part of what apologetics are for, making people happy, part of what Hasbara is for. Ending the criticism and this, and in the absence of the criticism, I bet everything's fine, right? Okay, but problematic. meaning the right. uh, sort of the, the, the culture of propaganda, so to speak. More than culture, <clears throat> the campaign. Yeah, the, the sort of the sort the of ongoing campaign. Yeah, but it, it's it's more than a campaign; it's a oh. culture. I would argue because it's something oh. which is. The notion of Hasbara is that you know it's incumbent upon every Israeli and I guess every Jew around every the world. Jew. To, Everyone you know, who loves the Jews, to, you know, <clears throat> all the Christians, all the Africans, to you know, propagandize on behalf of the Jewish state, right? Okay, to, to, uh, and yeah. and they'll even say that differently. They say, "What do you mean propagandize? Yeah, you mean to like uh, testify the truth of the yeah, good that yeah, we're doing yeah, for yeah, everyone yeah. Which else." Of, of course, is propaganda, right? Those are propaganda right, right, right. words. All right, right. so exactly. So, what do you mean by justifying Israel? Well, so there's another thing that justifying means, which is to, you know, share some of my cynicism. Yeah, <clears throat> Alhamdulillah, <laughs> Alhamdulillah. So, thank t- God t- t- for t- all t- the t- cynicism. T- 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 mean by that? Uh, um, justifying also means 
somehow taking something problematic and making it okay, mm-hmm. right? There is something about justifying that is actually like uh, medicinal marijuana is a great example, right? We couldn't sell ecstasy from reed as valid by itself. We had to justify it either as medicinal or somehow like a therapeutic, not as bad as alcohol, uh, makes people less angry. There we go again. Why can't it just be that it gets as high and that's enough? Because part of the problem, part of the criticism is our alienation, is the dissolution, is everything kids don't like about when their parents are high. You know, That demands justification to our children, to our friends, to our parents for why this is actually good. And okay. there's a similar problem in Judaism right. around the Sabbath concept. Yeah. The mm-hmm. Sabbath concept, and let's say Judaism at all, demands to be justified since its inception. Um, for example, the first Jews in Rome were expelled after about a month or two under suspicion of being Dionysians because all of their sacraments were on wine and whatever else. And even the rhetoric of saying Shabbos sounded a lot like Shaboy, which is one of the epithets for Jupiter Shabesius, one of the Dionysian aspects in Lucius. That's what they would say in Lucius. You go, you go to Lucius and you're at the big party and you're in the zone understanding the mystery of life and death in a way you never could before. And the way you'd explain it is like, Shaboy, Shaboy. I don't know why they'd say that. I don't know why it's called Shabesius. I don't know if that's entomologically connected in a way going back to Asia. Um, but the Romans picked up on it and said, we can't have you people here, you're crazy, until the Jews wrote back and said, no, 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 we're not Dionysians. Our God is much more uh, unpersonified than even Dionysius. And they're like, what? But he's very unpersonified. It's like, we know, but it's actually it's the wrong word. And they had to justify the whole thing. All right, in, so yeah. justifying Israel. Justifying I mean, you Israel. know, that, that, that name, the, the name of that chapter... Mm. And as I recall, the chapter itself, you know, just sort of um, smacks of Hasbara a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, my hope is that the way I would do such a thing would become more from sort of personal, confessional, apologetic, which is a lot how I relate to both religion and drugs. Personal, confessional, apologetic. I know I shouldn't justify anything I do. Uh, and here is what it means to me. Because trying to uh, justify it on the level of it's inherently good for you, too, and very inherently important is maybe the beginning of the lie part of the whole thing, right? If let's say I explain why I love gambling, I'm not saying gambling is good for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And let's say I wanted to pursue my love of gambling in a way that was safe. Well, I would have to find boundaries around establishing what okay, gambling but you was. You aren't talking about attractive. a personal choice like gambling or smoking cannabis. Really? You're talking about I'm not. A, you're talking about a state. You're Am talking I? about a political state. Well, Israel is a political state. And it is one... It's also a political state. Yes. But part yeah. of the problem of confusion is it doesn't identify with itself <clears throat> as a political state. Oh. This is part of the problem, right? All oh. the all the most right-wing Zionists I know hate Zionism. Oh. You not heard about this? Explain all the, what you're talking about. All the Kahanists. Explain what you're talking about. All the settler youth I yeah. know yeah. hate the state. The state is part of the problem. This is part of Moshe Feiglin's libertarian agenda. Full-on religious nationalist, libertarian anti-statist. Saying well, the state should get out of status. I know. Is it rhetorical? Is it just a rhetorical thing to, for like a settler youth? I mean, they probably Hebron? feel that you know the, the the state as currently constituted is too secular, and of course, it's becoming less secular all the time. They're saying we shouldn't have a state at all. We should just have our own little private armies of God. That is the popular position. Yeah. We should have a messianic kingdom without states. This is the popular opinion of the settler youth in Israel. That And to the degree that liberal Zionism tries to pretend the settlers are the whole problem and not liberal Zionism, right? 67 is a problem, not 48. 
-hmm. when the problem is rather embedded in the entire sense of need to protect a distinct identity. That's the original crime of the Nakba, right, on some level. On some level, maybe not historically, but fundamentally. Like, why is Zionism a problem to this day? Because racism is bad and because you shouldn't have a separate standard for some people against others. And this is very hard for Israelis and Jews across the board to accept because we're so used to a double standard where like, oh, we're the problem. What about Russia? What about China? What about uh, Syria? What about, uh, what about yeah, America? Right. Well, the, the, the whataboutism. Yeah, trick. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, 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 well, the Russians used to say about America, oh, they hang Negroes there. We, they do. We do. It's true. Does that justify the everything in the, the gulags? gulags yeah. and et cetera, right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. does. It, yeah. it does right away. So this is part of the problem justification and part of the challenge in doing something like that better. Because let's say you would ask communist Russia to be more actually authentically righteous and socialist. How would you even start to do it without um, responding to the whataboutism? So the easy way is to cut through it and be like, no, human rights are really important. Racism is bad. But then we're alienated from the local language of the conflicts where telling a uh, settler kid that racism is bad doesn't really resolve the problem of the neighborhood conflict he has with people who keep stealing his shit and who he keeps stealing their shit. And there's just a deeply embedded neighborhood thing like the Jets and the Sharks. Right. Well, this gets back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the whole, uh, you know, mystical current in the fascist tradition. Right. Huge. Right. So, I mean, you've got, you know, the some of these this is a part of your book that's kind of kind of and particularly mulling on it in the years since I've read it and and continuing to watch the the developments, you know. And, you know, the the whole notion that there's, you know, this um, sort of stoner culture, which is um, which is catching on among, you know, these radicalized right wing settler youth is to me. Kind of terrifying and appalling. Sorry. Well, sorry. I know. I hear you. Uh, um, so okay. So let's go back to justification. If you knew that there was a similar, and let's say let's let's already know that there's a similar thing happening amongst like uh, in Lebanon amongst the Hezbollah. One of the great accomplishments of Hezbollah the last while has been to basically, I wouldn't even say decriminalize because that's not how they roll over there, but to protect and institutionalize cannabis and hashish production in Lebanon um, as a national export. They're not, I don't think they're so public about it, but that's very much what's going on. Well, there have been moves towards, we're getting a little, again, we're getting onto a tangent. This is an important tangent. There have been been moves towards um, legalization in in Lebanon as well. I wasn't aware there were were certainly, I don't think they've been publicly supported by Hezbollah. For sure not, because Hezbollah is not Although Hezbollah, of course, has been making you know, money from the hashish production in the Bekaa Valley for the longest time. And Lebanon has been rather <clears throat> surrendered to Hezbollah for a while. Yes. Like, like, what's the word they use? Not failed state, but like phantom state, where Hezbollah basically controls whatever right. it wants to control. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the government does the other stuff and that they, they want you're, to deal you're with. probably aware that, you know, they just, uh, their goons just attacked the protest encampment in um in right. Beirut, just as expressions of, of the state, right? Yeah. As yeah. Hezbollah on team like state, yes, because yeah. they've as been as paramilitary enforcers, basically. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I mean, Hezbollah got the airport a while back, and ever since then, it's been pretty embedded. Just uh, got the airport. Yeah, the airport is controlled by Hezbollah oh. for years. You ever heard about the, you heard the about Beirut this? airport? Yeah, yeah. What controlled by Hezbollah in what sense? Um, uh, very like the the guy in ch- or the people in charge of the airport. Like I'm pretty sure are controlled by yeah. uh, by Hezbollah people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, f- feel free to check that out. Okay, but we we got onto not. this as a uh, as a kind of analogy. We got onto Lebanon as an analogy to Israel. Justifications. So let's bring it back to Israel and Palestine. Justifications, right? <laughs> Justifying 
uh, anything for the sake of anything is a problem, but it's very much what we're doing in different places. And part of the problem of Israel, part of the reason all the injustices are so institutionalized is because there is this fear, one side against the other, back and forth. And and similarly, Jordan and Lebanon and Syria and Egypt have always been the beneficiaries of this also. They would have had much more serious democratic uprisings a while ago if it wasn't for the specter of Israel. Yes, of course, 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 of course. Don't get me wrong. Okay, cool. No, but there's this other thing, overcoming it all, overcoming any sense of national identity, but uh, at which point, in which language, you know? Mm-hmm. The main snobbery I had as a kid of the Jews as opposed to the other indigenous peoples who were oppressed and annihilated by the great empire throughout history. Because as a kid, I mean, we talked about this a little bit. Growing up, my mom's from Ecuador, and we grew up with a lot of the narrative of indigenous struggles. And I think she got into Judaism partially in that spirit. May I ask, was your mom Sephardic or Catholic? No, no. My mom was, by the time my mom was growing up, the family had already tremendous contempt for the church. Okay, but your mom grew up Catholic? Ecuador decriminalized divorce in like the early 1900s. Okay, but your mom grew up Catholic? I can't say she did because her mom, it's a second marriage for her mom. Not Jewish in any sense. Not Jewish in any sense, for sure. Not Jewish in any sense, and the church was the religion. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really, uh, you saw people with beards sometimes, those were all Turks. Whatever they were, if they were Jews, if they were Arabs, they're all just Turcos. Todos son Turcos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And and they'd be around also, and they didn't necessarily hold by the church, and neither do we, because Ecuador had secularism before a lot of Latin America because they had a military coup earlier and a strong sense of propriety. And I think this is part of my mom's personal romance with Israel is that it did feel a lot similar to Ecuador in that there's a sort of citizen army and a sense of self-empowerment ethos. Um, and But the problem is a very different relationship to the other things and other people going around, going on. Um, but the conceit that I picked up as a kid was that the triumph of the Jews in Europe and in like uh, Arab Asia and through however much throughout the world, wherever they sort of endured, was because the indigenous thing was adaptable in its way. Found a way to keep its shit together and survive in all those other places. As a kid, this was the sort of essential fundamental arrogance I had about like, aha, the Jews found a way where all those other poor native tribes just couldn't, could not survive losing the native land, could not survive losing the native customs. Mm-hmm. This is this is a dumb juvenile sort of thing to take pride in. Mm-hmm. But one of the, I think, recurring hopes for... Um, well, I'm glad to hear you call it, uh, you know, uh, dumb and naive. Well, because, I'm trying to impress you, you know. <laughs> well, no, because yeah. I, I have Orthodox friends who very much feel this way even today and yeah. have no self-criticism about it at well, all. Well, you know. And to me, you know, it's extremely problematic. It could be a generational so. thing. Yeah, they're about your age. Oh, okay. Anyway. Um, Aha, Well, I mean, okay, you wrote your book, uh, as we said, six years ago now. So, uh, you know. More. I mean, that's more, that's the second edition. Second edition. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it's been quite a few years since you've written your book. And, uh, you know, I'm perfectly open to the notion that your um, uh, ideas have evolved. But uh, you wrote about your time hanging out with your fellow Judeo hippies at a uh, yeshiva in a place called Bat. Ayin. Bad Ayin, right. Mm-hmm. Bad Ayin, yeah. Uh, and you don't actually say that it's not in Israel, but mm. in the occupied West Bank. Well, let's talk about the distinction. Yes, please. Let's talk about it. <laughs> That's why I brought it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How important is it? <laughs> what does it help to identify the occupied West Bank as distinct from Israel? In rhetoric, in light of how much the experience of the place is, is not that. I mean, I think similarly to... Referring to Arab neighborhoods in Israel as Palestine, 
um, is important and because that's the experience on the ground, independent of what the state statement is, what the official. Okay, if you are arguing in favor of a single secular state. I am. Or better yet, as an anarchist, or better yet, as an anarchist, as you know, arguing for a no state solution. I mean, speedily in our days. Okay, but um, one state's more realizable because you you have to give people rights, and that's the first step to overcoming this whole mechanism. I'm going to take a strong statement. I voted for Hadash in the last two elections. One state is the way, two states is only reinforcing different corrupt power structures. Tell tell us about Hadash. All right. Hadash is the Arabs. I mean, Hadash is the post-Marxist Arab party. They recently, in order to have political presence in the Israeli Knesset, made a joint list with all the other Arab parties, uh, which is a little unwieldy because they're all pretty different in their way. All the truth is most of their platforms are pretty legitimate. Most of their platforms... These are the ones who are willing to participate or, in the Israeli government. In short, Hadash is the, the left-wing Arab-supported party in Israel, which now— Now is, is in charge. Now they're is, at the top of the list. They're the so main they're, ones. They're going to be the opposition, it looks like, right, in the current reshuffling, which is going on. I don't on. think so. I don't no? think they're the opposition. They're going to be part of the ruling— Oh, yes? Otherwise, they don't have a coalition. Hmm. Gantz can't make a coalition without them. Right, but is it going to be Gantz or is it going to be Bibi? Bibi already gave up. Oh, Bibi gave up. Bibi seated. Mm-hmm. Bibi said, I can't do it. I did my best. I'm afraid I burned too many bridges. Nobody likes me. Bibi finally conceded. And now it's Gantz's turn. Uh-huh. And for Gantz to have a government. All right, Gantz is no great shakes himself, but uh, but he's actually going to bring in Hadash as a coalition partner? What choice does he have? Let's let's find let's see him find a way not to. All right. Well, this is all very interesting. Yeah, for him to for him to find a way not to, he'd have to turn two or three right-wing parties to think he's worth joining up with. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's worth it to him. I think he might as well have the Arabs all along board as okay. fellow secularists. And, and Hadash is openly now calling for a, um, a single secular state in all of historic Palestine? I don't think they are. That's the background conversation amongst the kids right. at that's the events. What I, that's what I would have thought. I yes. mean, the publicly two states is the only way you can have because yeah. everyone has to reinforce it's their own with, local nationalism. It's only within the so-called Overton window in Israel, right? Yeah. But it is the backdrop of all the kids' conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baruch Hashem. Yeah, yeah. Because right. it's really, I mean, because part of the challenge is convincing people to overcome their own biases and profound sense of uh, identity and cultural value. And okay, but the, I would argue that this is what, um, what needs to be brought into, you know, the Overton window, so to speak. Right. The notion of, you know, at least... Putting aside, you know, the anarchist utopian of utopianism of a we'll no come back to that of a no state solution. Right. Okay. Let's let's not be too ambitious. At least the speedily notion, in our days. At least the notion of a of a single secular state in all of historic Palestine is what needs to be brought into the you know into within in, into the Overton window into the legitimate spectrum of debate within Israel and not only within Israel but you know internationally in terms of perceptions of the whole Palestinian question as it were right right so uh yeah so <clears throat> if if in fact that were already on the legitimate spectrum of debate then it wouldn't be so important to note that you know bat ayin is actually not in israel but it is not within the spectrum of debate okay mm. and what is unfortunately in it the, can't be because it what, loses what the charismatic is, part of the debate is unfortunately becoming you know uh, which is now being mainstreamed in israel what is being brought into the overton window in israel is the notion of israeli annexation of the west bank or much of it not as a secular state, but as part of a Jewish state. As although, part, right, and that's utterly sinister, and and that's what I they fear. Lost. You know, yeah, that was that was BB's exact promise and threat: marijuana, legal marijuana, annex the West Bank. Ugh, but ugh. now he's gone. 
But now BB gave up and his faction is not the one making any of the decisions. I don't think it benefits the centrists their uh, annexation at all. On the contrary, their narrative traditionally is even their marketing campaign, even their, their uh, whole election was messianism or secularism, which to me broke my heart because I have positive associations with messianism. I think of messianism as the no state solution. Walter Benjamin's messianism is my messianism. You know, I think of that as being an inspiring sort of hope because it is so much the rhetorical culture well, that I was well, in. Well, Walter Benjamin was only, uh, I mean, he was a complete secularist, wasn't he? Was he? I don't know. Was he? It's my impression. Um, I mean, he was a communist. He's is he is he even a communist? He's like an anarchist nihilist. He goes through a bunch of different phases. He goes through a lot of different phases, um, and he grows up in a very defined secular milieu. But he does embrace religious language and symbolism as a way of talking about what revolution has to be at its fundamental level. And he's the first one to really call well, out. I mean, he famously had the exchange with Gershom Sholem. Yeah. And you know, he said, okay, you want to go to Palestine? Fine. I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm going to Moscow. Right. You know, to, you know the, the real tradition, the real, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the true Jerusalem today is Moscow. Right. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I mean, well, they showed him. <laughs> well, they did, yes, yeah. indeed. <laughs> and Gershom Sholem, he, like, retired Although he actually, you know, he died, he didn't directly he died die on the, border. The, on the hands of the fascists. Right. But he died fleeing the Nazis. Yeah. Right, yeah. So he didn't actually... Could have been worse. He could have been, well... <laughs> It could, um, it could have been worse if he hadn't killed himself and he had actually fallen into the hands of the Nazis, yes. Anyway, right. do you Gershom remember— Gershom on the other hand, is a very—the the entire wing of study at the university is named after him. It's his chair that Moshe Schiedel inherited. You could say he, he had a more effective long-term— uh, and, and if not for Gershom Sholem, how much access would we have to Walter Benjamin? I mean, there was that other guy who passed it on. What's his name? Who was the executive of the estate. I forget his name. Um— the executor of who's estate, Gershom Sholem's or uh, Walter Benjamin's, or Walter Benjamin. the guy who had all his writings. I forget mm-hmm. his name. Anyhow, 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 this is part of the problem with justification. You know, I think it comes up a little bit with the question around Rojava. Am I pronouncing that word right? Is it Rojava? Rojava, the Kurdish uh, homeland yeah. in northern Syria. Yeah. Yes, Zionists yes, 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 love yes. Kurdistan. Well, you know, this is another question that fills me with a great deal of anguish. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. We'll oh, get, okay, to, fine. Two things I want to get to before before we wrap up this conversation. I want to get to the Kurdish question, and I want to yes. get to and I want to get the the Brooklyn. I want to Zionist get the, I want to, I want to get the, the, the Williamsburg. Okay, okay. okay. <clears throat> but before we do, you know, I just want to point out. Uh, do you remember back in I believe it was probably the eighties, the nineties? There was a um, an anti war group. In fact, a draft resistance group, a refusenik group in Israel called Yesh Gavul. Right. Yeah. And their name meant, uh, you know, they were young kids refusing to be drafted because they didn't want to serve enforcing the occupation on the West Bank. And older moms. Oh, yeah? I mean, I, th- I associate Google with, like, older ladies also. Oh, who didn't want their sons to be drafted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or anybody Okay, but, and, but the reason I'm bringing that up is because the name, I mean, I don't speak Hebrew, you do, okay? Sure. But uh, to my understanding, the name literally means there's a limit. And that this was uh-huh. uh, in, intended. This is how it was explained right. to me by their supporters. In there's any a case. border, exactly. <laughs> this, this was intended. There is a border. <laughs> this was, was intended to have three meanings. The first meaning hmm. is, you know, there's um, a limit to what we're going to take as Israeli youth. We're right. not. We're not going to be drafted to, to serve as enforcers for the occupation. We're only going right. to kill so many people before we get tired. Exactly. Right. So there's a limit to what you can make us do. Secondly, there's a limit to what you know Israel can do to the Palestinians, and with, with us going along with it. Right. Right. There's, there's right. A limit to how much brutality you can inflict on the on the Palestinians before you know we're going to say no enough is enough. Right. And finally, 
there is a limit in terms of there is a green line. There is a limit between Israel and the West Bank. Well, this the, is problematic. This last why is this problematic? Because the innovation of 67 and the thing that happened there was to avoid a refugee crisis. This is, this is part of the problem in the occupation narrative. The Nakba was a refugee crisis. Occupation is not a narrative. Occupation is a fact. The West Bank is occupied. Fair enough. Under international law. Yes. Okay? It's not a narrative. It's a fact. It's both things. Mm. A a fact can also be a narrative. But okay, fair enough. I'm sorry. The fact of the occupation Mm -hmm. was an alternative to a refugee crisis or a proper genocide, like in 48. 48 had no problem of the, the 48 borders. They just either wiped out those villages or sent them packing to Dearborn or wherever. And 67, the goal was not to do that for all the reasons, partially because of Moshe uh, Dayan not, was an Orientalist. You've got, to, uh, you've got to reframe this. I'm not quite following. You're okay. drawing a, a distinction between uh, 48 and 67. Very natural distinction because okay. the green line is 67. That's right. We're talking about 67 borders. Yep, yep, yep. That was an attempt to not have to disrupt the lives of Palestinians in the same kind of way. Now, forgive me for what even saying that. What was the annexation of the West Bank? Then the only, the half annexation, because they didn't annex it. That's the whole thing. Well, right, right, um, forgive me. Right. The if occupation, they annexed it, yes. The occupation of the West Bank. Yes, exactly. Forgive me. Forgive absolutely, me. Yeah. absolutely. Yes, the occupation of the West Bank yeah. was for the sake of not having another Nakba. Because, oh? Yeah, 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 yeah. They could have done that, and they did not. They could have had a proper... Uh, it, uh, forgive uh, my Hasbarist uh, arguments. Uh, no, disagree? It does, it does okay. smell like Hasbarist. I know. Man. I'm big sorry. Time, I'm sorry. So, so, clarif- so fix what I'm saying. Correct what I'm saying. Why did they do that otherwise? The Kahanist argument is they did it because they wanted to keep cheap Palestinian labor forever. That was an expressive, exploitive goal of 67. Let's keep the Arabs around so they'll keep doing stuff for us, but never have political rights. Right. Well, I think no? that the uh, okay. I think that okay. Obviously, since 1967, mm. there have been all these, you know, um, biblical justifications for it, and all of this messianism and all this annexation is functionally relevant you know, as far as politics. I'd say, and certainly, I don't think so whatsoever. Go I mean, on. even even calling the West Bank Judea and Sumeria and all of that, but the original arguments which were made at the time, I think, had more to do with. Um, you know, the security of Israel that we need, you know, to mm. occupy this land as a buffer to keep uh, to keep the the army of Jordan at bay. I so mean, why not just annex it in that case? Well, because they couldn't get away yet when and maybe they didn't had, had developed the certainly they couldn't get away with it politically. And secondly, maybe by that point, you know, they hadn't yet developed the ambition to annex it or at least they it was annexed, only, uh, like in 48, 48, they annexed everything. Why not just do what they did in 48? Uh, because uh, the United Nations was not backing them. Since when do they give a shit about the United Nations? Well, so when do the United Nations have anything to do with what's going on in the Mideast? I mean, it's nice of them to stop by, I guess, but when have they actually the, 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 stopped anything or made anything happen? The, the, the General Assembly resolution which created the State of Israel is considered to be the uh, legitimate basis for the foundation of the State of Israel. Oh, that's nice. Meanwhile, they had an actual armed revolt before that and declared independence before that. The UN eventually ratified that, but it... After they already had taken it over from the British using guns that they'd gotten from Russia, right? Well, that was really <clears throat> the whole thing. They didn't wait for any kind of UN sort of validation to have their little uprising. They did that first. That was the entire thing. They had a whole war, and only after the war, UN's like, yeah, all right, cool, right? And is that not historically accurate? Starting with the Dominican Republic. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Dominican Republic refusing to take in the Jewish refugees? No, you mean? encouraging. The Dominican Republic is the only one that wanted to take in the Jewish refugees. To... Right, yes, 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 yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Backwards, backwards. They're not the, Haitians. Only, the only country that did was... Right, was, exactly. Right, right, to atone yeah, for Haitians. Right. In the same yes, way, yes, yes, in the same yes, way that yes. Cromwell takes in the Jews to atone for the Irish. Hmm. Well, I don't know if it was to atone for the Haitians so much as that they... To offset. To offset the yeah, Haitians, yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, to, yeah. to bring in, you know, it's very ironic. The Jews at that time were being persecuted in Europe because they weren't Aryan enough. They weren't white enough, if you will. And so, you know, the Dominican Republic wanted to take them in because they were white and they could, you know, whiten up the population and dilute the Haitian element in the population. So, you know. <clears throat> right. Although I would argue that a lot, that like, uh, it wasn't just about not being white enough. They didn't really do that against the other, dis- I mean, like the gypsies. Okay, fine. Um, there is specific concerns about the Jews' trip of sort of self-identification at the expense of everything else. That's part of, like, Ulysses. I was shocked to read the first chapter in Ulysses and see how much in, like, 1915 the Irish are terrified the Jews are going to come and take over Dublin like they took over Berlin. And let's talk about Williamsburg for a second. Williamsburg sort of proves that the Jewish problem is not just the Zionists because the Satmar kind of rolls in the same way. That's like the most scandalous right. thing I'm going to say right now. But I'm gonna, let's build on that. Like, well, uh, we should make clear that— Let's, go, know, let's get into we this. We should yeah. make clear that the Satmars are the Hasidic sect which rejects Zionism. Right. Yeah. Well, all Hasidic sects reject Zionism. Oh. Uh, Chabad found themselves a dispensation for not uh, rejecting it too aggressively. But even Chabad fundamentally rejects Zionism because— States are very unhasidish, I'm afraid. You know, it's just not that the, the and, I'll, and I'll say it in a even like more self-incriminatory way because I think it's important to self-incriminate. If you're gonna if you're gonna blame anybody for a problem, blame yourself. Try to take some responsibility. Um, not identifying with the state makes you feel like you're not accountable for its crimes. And all of Hasidic Judaism across the board does not want to identify with any of the structures that do any of the bad things in the world. Not that they really oppose them. Yeah, but it's the Satmars who actually view the uh, you know the establishment of Israel as heresy because there isn't supposed to be a Jewish state Everyone until, does. until the Messiah comes. All the Hasidists do, except yeah, maybe for Gare. Satmar is a bit more coherent. Anyway, you're the one who brought up the Satmars. Yeah, so yeah, what, yeah. what was the point you were trying to make? Satmar, have, you, have you ever had a Satmar landlord? Baruch Hashem, you haven't had to deal with it. I grew up, my dad's family business was defending poor people, mostly Latino, uh, from oppressive slumlords. As a, a lawyer. As a lawyer, yeah. as, a, as a sort of free lawyer for poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw how embedded that was, this sort of sense of validity to just exploiting people who aren't your people. Like, sounds like a very goyish thing to do. Maybe it's some kind of like a viral thing that went from Europe onto the Satmar community. Or that's always been part of the problem in all the tribalism, which Israel is as guilty of as anyone else. If not more so. And maybe it's always been part of the pickle, part of why the Hellenists were so troubled by the Jews and part of why Christianity had to be a Jewish thing because they had to resolve the Jewish question as much as they had to resolve the uh, Carthaginian one, if not more so. Because right, again, tangents yeah. after tangents. We were, we I, start, I they were bringing it back. I we, thought that was bringing it full circle. Okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, <clears throat> Williamsburg, which was itself a tangent from the West Bank, but Williamsburg? Right. What what, what was the point you were making about... uh... The problem, and Williamsburg suffers from this other colonial problem nowadays, right? Gentrification is a colonial problem. Absolutely. Early Zionism is sort of like gentrification. That's right. First they come in, just buy up some land, rent some stuff, buy some land up. Uh, There is a popular thing to say, you're not a gentrifier until you start buying property. If you're just renting, you're just you know you're just getting by. If you're well, buying if, houses if, and renting them out, if you're renting, you can be what's called an early gentrifier. 
okay. a somewhat problematic phrase in many well, ways. And, but, and, and there's a crisis in local politics between... But, but you aren't actual gentry, so to speak, until you start buying. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. There you go. The resistance to the early Zionists, before they started arming themselves, and have, when it was just a cultural movement, was a resistance to sort of a gentrification campaign. But what is the difference between gentrification and migration? I'm asking. What is the difference between gentrification and migration? Yeah, yeah. What is what is legitimate migration and what is predatory gentrification? I think there's a little... displacement of the pre-existing population. Ah, touche. Thank you. Touche. Yeah. Well, it's a kind of a no-brainer. How can you avoid that? If you just start coming in somewhere, if you and your friends just start moving in somewhere, how do you avoid displacement? Isn't that part of the entire history of the city, the Dutch and like the Germans? Well, yes, it is. In fact, it's what I talk about on my on my uh, historical walking tour of the Lower East Side that I do every Saturday and Sunday. I talk about you know right. the whole wave after wave, you know, since the cycles of immigration going all the way, and each one feels threatened by the group that follows it. I mean, right. initially you had the uh, the Germans and the Dutch. And then, you know, beginning in the 1820s, 1830s, you had the, I'm sorry, not the Germans and the Dutch, but the English and the Dutch. You initially right. had the English and the Dutch, you know, going right. back to New Amsterdam. Right. So uh, then uh, beginning in the 1820s, you had the Germans and the Irish. And the, and, the, and the English and the Dutch, who were, you know, the old established elite of New York, felt threatened by and superior to the, um, the, uh, the Germans and the Irish and looked down on them as drunken and riotous and the rabble. Right. Then in the, 18, uh, in the 1880s, the Jews and the Italians and the Slavs begin to arrive. And the, then, you know, the, uh, the Germans and the Irish don't want to live with them. And, uh, and, and they start moving out. The Germans start moving uptown. So, you know, the Lower East Side right. used to be little Germany. It used to be Klein Deutschland uh. in, until, the, the, uh, until the Jews and the Italians and the Slavs started moving in. Right. Then, you know, the Ukrainians and the Polish and, and so on. Then the Germans started moving uptown to Yorkville. That became the new little Germany. Right. So um, then, uh, you know... Then the neighborhood became dominated by Jews and Italians and Poles and Ukrainians Woo-hoo! until the 1950s, 1960s. Puerto Ricans and Dominicans start to arrive, and then the whole cycle continues. Do you remember when that happened? Were you, were you, were you, how old were you when the Dominicans and, and let's say, the, the, the blacks came up from the south? Where, like, where were you then? Uh, well, I do you really think I, I, I haven't shaved my beard, so I've got my, my, my long beard today. Right, right, right. You, you, you probably think that I'm older than I actually I am. Like two or three hundred years old, is very, my sense very, of you. Very just, funny. just, just very from your funny. relationship to technology. Well, for starters, <laughs> I can, <clears throat> sorry. You're I've been living in the Lower East Side for 30 years now, but I actually grew up in Queens. I didn't oh. grow up on the Lower East Side. Okay. Oh. And uh, how all of this, uh, all of these changes affected my own life is uh, kind of a whole deep conversation. And that's to do with the fact that I'm the, uh, the first of all, I'm the product of a mixed marriage, uh, as you are, Ecuadorian and Jewish. I'm Italian well, and Jewish. My mom's Jewish, too. Yeah, but she converted. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless. Okay, nonetheless, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. All right, let me rephrase that. Right, right, Ecuadorian right. and Ashkenazic. All right. Um, uh, okay, we'll go with it. Thank you. I tried to make some right, well, distinction. I, well, I'm, uh, you know, uh, Italian and Ashkenazic. My mother, oh. my mother's Italian. All right. About. So uh, I've got all sorts of identity crises going right. on. All right. So, um, uh, you know, the early Italian immigration is part of why Williamsburg was so friendly the whole time. I recently learned this from our assemblyman, Joe Lentall. His grandfather was also, his family politics for a while, his grandfather was a contemporary of Sacco and Vanzetti and the entire sort of, uh, early attempt to legitimize Italians 
And he was one of the first elected officials to like stake out a space. A lot of the entire capacity for gentrification in Williamsburg is because it's been friendly and nice and diverse to whatever degree it's been open and willing to be. Well, I know more about the history of the Lower East Side right. than I do about the history of Williamsburg by right. virtue of having lived here for um, for 30 years and not getting across the river very often because New Yorkers can be very provincial. It's so nice here. <clears throat> what do you need from the other side of the river? There's so much good things here, everything you need. But uh, definitely, you know, each of these transitions on the Lower East Side... Transition, transition. <laughs> ...has been punctuated <laughs> by uh, gang warfare and violence. Every, every one of them. Every, every one. Every one of them, yes. Even the Asians? especially the Asians. Uh, well, uh, I mean, the, the big Asian community is more to the south in Chinatown. Right. So uh, that's kind of a, a separate discussion. But in any event, um, we were talking about um, how does gentrification differ from migration? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a huge political struggle right now, I think, in a lot of ways in North Brooklyn. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to explain a little bit. My grad, growing up, my family was very involved in local neighborhood politics. Because that was everything. Because my dad grew up in East New York, East Flatbush, and his family tried to stick out longer than a lot of other families did. But all, he had like – the neighborhood was so well, those Jewish. Are, those, are, those are two distinct neighborhoods, East New York and East Flatbush. Not back then. Yeah, really? Back then, it was all Flatbush. Oh, back yeah? Then, back then, it was the same euphemism for like everything. They, they thought of like the New York Public Library as their library even though it's a great distance away because that was all just a, a long slope along like Eastern Parkway all the way to the end. I mean, you hear about so much of the range of neighborhoods in Brooklyn are new developments where, where this whole extended thing that was once just Bed-Stuy is actually 40 different neighborhoods, you know, like uh, Park Slope was like is, is now like 40 different neighborhoods. And as gentrification continues east, they're going to start finding all kinds of names for East Flatbush. They're going to call it like, you know. Uh, yes, right. Well, yeah. already, you know, I mean, it's also a no rap flat. that I give on my tour, you know, when the. Back in the 1990s, the Lower East Side was like, you know, the neighborhood which was really hot and everybody was young and artistic wanted, and hip wanted to live here until it got completely gentrified. The hipsters were priced out. They jumped the river to Williamsburg. Right. During that period, the Lower East Side became known as the East Village. You know, because That's it, when it happened. Because the Lower East Side, you know, oh. is a name which conjures up images of crime and poverty and cockroaches. Right. Whereas East Village is a name that conjures up images of art galleries and hipsters and overpriced coffee. Right. So, uh, right. The, Alphabet so, City's so, over there. So during that period, the Lower East Side became known as East Village. Then the hipsters got priced out of the East Village. They jumped the river to Williamsburg. And then Williamsburg became known as Billyburg, which was Ew. like the new gentrified name of Williamsburg. And what's happening now is that the hipsters and the artists and so on are getting priced out of um, out of Williamsburg, they're going further east into Bushwick, and now Bushwick is becoming known as East Williamsburg. Right, and now they're being priced out of um, out of, out of Bushwick into Ridgewood. Into Ridgewood, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure they'll find a fancy name for that. Exactly. There's, there's a great prophetic early Onion article where they say uh, gentrification process gives way to the aristocratification process. And suddenly the cafes and sort of art studios are closing and they start building the helicopter landing pads. Oh, absolutely. That's totally happening. Of course. I mean, it isn't to the point of helicopter landing pads yet. But Well, uh, you know, there was pretty contentious there for a while. They built a whole park along the waterfront. If not for... That You're was, talking about your side of the river. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the yeah, Brooklyn yeah. Side Our side. Of the river. Yeah, that was a compromise position. I th- Those would have been the extension of the buildings where they would have had their own sort of little boat yeah, parkings. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah, if not yeah, for, yeah. Exactly, uh, exactly. If not for yeah, good yeah, old yeah, Joe yeah, Lento. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that guy. So, um, but no, I mean, you know, foreign capital buying up buildings and, and not even bothering, you know, to inhabit them, but just sit on them as real estate. 
speculation. Right. That's what's going on now. It's like post gentrification. It's beyond gentrification. Right. Yeah. 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 It's like gentrification 2.0. It's very late. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even yuppies. We used to say die yuppie scum back in the 80s. Yeah. Now it's not even yuppies. Now it's, you know, just like foreign capital just speculating. And the local politics are a little confused and confounded lately because of it. Because we had some great coalition turnarounds in light of the gentrification where the last couple local elections we unseated a bunch of the embedded corrupt power forces, like the great Vito Lopez empire. I don't know if that name means anything to you, but there was a pretty hegemonist and problematic. Who was that? He was the assemblyman for our neighborhood for a long time. I grew up with him as like a sort of family friend, good guy. Um, but he turned pretty hard, turned pretty hard at some point. Um, In what sense? Uh, betrayed the community and community interests for personal interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and self-righteously and angrily, mostly through a sort of uh, aggressive sort of uh, alienation campaign of sort of deciding who you could talk to and who you couldn't talk right. to as far as local... What, what era are we talking about here? We're talking about until like until he died like four or five years ago. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wayne Barrett from The Village Voice over here did a lot of the sort of uh, field work and did the sort of reporting on the whole situation. But just last little while, ever since the DSA came together, a lot of local elections um, overcame a lot of the embedded people he'd set in power. D- uh, Dilan and um, – well, we're working on Steve Levin. We'll see how that goes. But there's been a degree of internal schism between the DSA version of progressive politics and the community – uh, organizations version of local politics. Mm, elaborate. I'm a little D- scared. DSA, too. Democratic Socialist. I'm of a little America. scared too because it's a very delicate <clears throat> sort of schism. Well, you brought it up, man. I know, I know. And I think it's actually important because the problem of how much of a equitable situation you can build in something that's a little bit fundamentally inherently imperialist is, I think, part of the crisis of trying to find best case scenario version of whatever Israel would be. And I experience a lot of the moral conflict and contrast back and forth between I grew up in Williamsburg and my dad is an Orthodox Jew, gets progressively more into Orthodoxy as he gets older, but grew up with traditional like Judaism in a neighborhood wherever he describes it as the neighborhood so Jewish. December 25th, you would not know there was a holiday. <laughs> you, would, you would just go and there was no signs of anything. No one was talking about it. That's how Jewish East New York was at the time. And then within a couple of years. All right. And that, what era are we talking about now? When 50s. your dad was a kid, the yeah, 50s. 50s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Early, early 50s, within a year or so, everyone he knows is dispersed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the way they talk about it is almost like some kind of like a hurricane. Yeah. As opposed yeah, to yeah, like yeah, an yeah, act yeah, of decision. Yeah. Now, to... I grew up, uh, you know, hearing the same stories, um, you know, from my mom growing up in the South Bronx. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny to hear them talk about it because yeah. – like the part of us that identifies with not racism is like, well, did you really have to leave? But they really make it sound like we were just getting robbed every day. It was only street violence all the time. Eventually, we had no choice but to go to like somewhere in like uh, Jersey or Mammoth County. My dad's family stayed close by, went to Canarsie, which they eventually left also to go to different parts of Long Island. But that's how my dad got into housing law. All right, but this is, you know... <clears throat> Again, this is you know, viewing "quote unquote" street crime in uh, you know uh, political context. This right. is how you know the the new group claims their turf. I mean, you know, the the Italians were right. stigmatized in precisely the same terms. Right, but there's other thing you going know, on. Back, uh, you know, back you know back back in the 1920s and earlier. Right, but okay? the other thing going on they is they were the housing stigmatized developers. in precisely the same terms. And, yeah. You know, 
as being, you know, the criminal element and, uh, you know, and we can't live with them because they're, uh, you know, they're making the, da- the neighborhood dangerous and they're driving down the property values. And yeah. This is what I'm talking about. It's the same cycle. Yeah. 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 So it's it always an, an, an irony to me that, <laughs> you know, I was hearing this kind of stuff from my Italian mom when I was growing up. Uh, I hope she's not going to listen to this uh, uh, podcast. She probably won't. Anyway, uh, sorry, Ma. Uh, <laughs> I I'm love sure you, Ma. But still very uh, proud of you. <laughs> it was she a long is time so ago. Proud of how honest you are. Anyway, it's a shame to feel like your neighborhood is not your neighborhood, and it's hard to stop that amidst waves. And I hear you. One of the crises all the time is how can you do that in a way that doesn't displace people and doesn't mean displacement. And the main well, way, I mean, the yeah, thing that happened, ahead. the thing that happened in Palestine mm-hmm. was armed revolt, where just like you guys, you you think you paid for this place, it's not yours. That was the initial reaction that made it a violent conflict, as early as it was a violent conflict. And I wonder how much we can learn to do things better, because the main justification for everything terrible. Okay, okay, does, justification, justification. Right, okay, here we are, bringing. The I'm trying to bring it tangent back. Tangent after tangent, we're I'm bringing it back to it justification. Back. Exactly. It's no, okay, no matter, no matter what. The justifications may have been in 1948, no matter what the justifications may have been in 1967, okay, no matter what the actual constraining historical circumstances might have been in, uh, you know, the immediate aftermath of uh, World War II and the Holocaust in, 18, in, in 1948, all right, no matter what those contexts were, the actual existing status quo is oppressive and needs to be opposed, and there can't be any equivocation about that. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, but I think I feel like you're about to say the word but. But. Ugh. Uh, no, I'm not in, I mean, I don't love equivocating. Here's, the, here's why I would try to equivocate mm-hmm. to justify your mom, you know, justify uh, people on the ground can't really believe that as long as the sense of their conflict with someone else is realer to them and no amount of moral clarity crosses that border of alienation that's the very natural nationalism of like punks and fucking like uh, arsim is the word we have for like greasers in israel what's that word <clears throat> arsim it really a-r-s-i-m i guess that is how you spell it yeah, yeah. what does yeah. it mean exactly it means like I mean, like greaser, basically. Yeah. It's it's although it implies Moroccan kids. Oh, yeah. Israelis across the board, young whelps uh, who are like care about their personal appearance, relatively modern, good looking, handsome, mostly kind of greasers and thugs, combing their hair, uh, love their soccer team, have certain fundamental religious identities in practice, having to do with just core assumptions about like gender roles, and so excited for the fight. So excited to be on our team, not your team, in that very natural gang folk. Or, I'm sorry, and our team being Israel, whichever side. I'm either one. Well, in this particular context, you're talking about our team is Israel, and the other team is the uh, word comes from the. It's an Arabic word, so the pa- Arabs have it also. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. Uh, even Arabs, I'm sure, have a range of how much they identify with each other. Well, I mean, yes. a lot of Nasser's hope was that they would overcome that and have a larger pan-Arabism. I don't think that's worked out so well. I think well, a lot obviously of obviously it hasn't. But <clears throat> yeah, I mean that is one of the great Zionist criticisms of uh, concern for Palestinians is like if you're really concerned, why don't you offer to host them and offer them full rights? 
to this day in Jordan, Palestinians are a second-class citizenship. But this is bullshit. Okay, you're absolutely right. But again, Talk equivocation. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Maybe that's true, but it I doesn't justify anything that Israel is not doing. Not at all. Not at all. It doesn't <laughs> accept the degree. Uh, and the, the homeland of the Palestinians is not Jordan. It's Palestine. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Thank you. I mean, like, sure, knowing that and announcing that and testifying that doesn't change, like, street kid's sense of what's real. But so what? So street kids are the main people. Mm-hmm. Street kids are who we're talking about. Street kids are the actual folk on both sides. And this is the problem with the charismatic impact of nationalism. This is why nationalism does well. And overcoming that has to be not just, you know, you really should be less racist, but like a culture already formed of something better than the racial divisions. You know what I mean? And this is a challenge to cultivate. It's one of my great hopes for marijuana and religious fundamentalism, to be honest, is a shared or a way of bridging the shared global anti-racist culture that isn't just ideological, that isn't just pretentious alienation, telling street kids what they should do, but is human and shows up and hangs out and makes clear that those walls uh, are already gone. Because that's really the only effective anarchism. You know, it's not a revolt against structures, but having better alternatives to structures already in place that when the structures fail and when capitalism fails, you already have something you can do rather than just conceits that people will fail. Well, you know what I mean? <clears throat> you know what I mean? Because this is part of the problem. My mom's experience of socialism as a kid was just conceit, alienated conceit from academic scholars in her schools who – the way she would describe socialists is people who had their own native servants, their own indigenous servants to make their coffee In Ecuador. In Ecuador. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have your own because you couldn't trust the ones where you were to make coffee the way you wanted to make coffee for you. That's a socialist. To my mom growing up. And to this day, it informs a lot of her lack of enthusiasm for the revolt happening. I was like, there's a revolt that happened in Ecuador. The The big uprising that just happened in Ecuador. That pushed the government out of the capital. My mom's from Guayaquil. So she says the government's been pushed to her town. Yes, that's right. That's right. And she said Guayaquil was always the business center. It's always been the de facto actual center of everything. Quito is more like Albany. And let's say let's say if the government was pushed out of Albany into Trump Tower, it's like would anything really change on the ground? Um, somewhat of an imprecise. Um, uh, I hear you analogy, but uh, yes, I hear yes, you. Yes, yes, yes. Like yes. Uh, a lot of this con, a lot of the problem. I mean, with Quito is the political capital, and uh, Guayaquil is more the commercial capital. Right, yeah. and and now and Quito is all. I mean, they're very culturally distinct. You yeah, know, Quito is Quito's closer to Otavalo. Quito's closer to the entire indigenous world. No, no, yeah, Quito is. Quito yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Quito's Quito in the mountains. Yeah, Quito's, Quito's like, in the mountains. It's hard to get to. It's very indigenous. You're Quechua being spoken in right. the streets. Which is why it's and, like Albany yeah, in this yeah, metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also yeah, out of right. the way. Yeah, ha, 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 ha. Uh, it's and, also sketchtacular. Guayaquil is, you know, it's a port town and it's, you know. Why, yeah, yeah. Um, it's in the lowlands. My mom's not so. Imp- I was surprised at how unimpressed she was by that revolt because I grew up, she identified very strongly with indigenous peoples and stuff. Um, and she feels like they're just going to be pushed around by some other some other interest. They've been sort of subverted and used, and like that's just always the nature of the thing. I don't know how much that narrative is just her friend's narrative, and I don't know how, and how much has to do with what's really going on. But going back to this problem, an well, alienated but, uh, progressive well, anti-racism well, that doesn't hang quite... On, but the, the, I mean, this is, you know, I'm supposed to be writing, I've been working on a manuscript about this for mm-hmm. the past 20 years, about indigenous struggles in... Um, particularly in the, the Quechua cultural sphere, Ecuador, oh. Peru, Bolivia. And, I mean, certainly over the past generation, the uh, the uh, indigenous peoples have become big political actors 
in um, in Ecuador. They they brought down repeated governments, which is why you know for the past generation they brought down repeated governments with big popular uprisings. Right? You know, why were they, they just they, wiped out? It's so weird. They, why didn't they just? Why well, didn't because they're the big win? majority. At least in the highlands, they're uh-huh. the big majority. It is so a problem. That, to that's wipe why out the that's why the true. government actually uh, you know this time around in this uprising that we just saw in Ecuador, the government blinked. Yeah. You know, they, they won. Right? The 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 the, the fuel. Subsidies being dropped, which is what oh, you know the, the new neoliberal government really? of Lenin Moreno. Yeah, 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 yeah. They Good won, and, yeah. the, and the Yay. reason the reason the government blinked is because you know they had to evacuate the capital and then flee to Guayaquil, and they were afraid of being overthrown. Right, as has happened repeatedly. They were overthrown. Ecuador. Right, they fled to not be overthrown, which means they were overthrown. <laughs> if you flee to not be overthrown, I'm afraid you've been overthrown. <laughs> Although I guess Assad anyway, would argue against that. So, <clears throat> um, yeah. Good point. Good example. Anyway. Organizing is possible. Indigenous cooperation is possible. Anyway, we got onto all of this by it's talking about related. the democratic socialists my, of America. My solution to the Israel-Palestine problem has always been psychedelics with, oh, for the problem platform. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Psychedelics are your solution to the Israeli-Palestinian yeah, yeah, yeah. conflict. Yeah, yeah, and, Okay, and so you're going to so have to make this case. I'm listening. Let's Go do ahead. it. Let's do it. I think the, the conflict has gotten much less bloody since medicinal marijuana became a stronger presence. I'm not sure there's a cause and effect relationship there. But Maybe not, right? Causality is not correlation. And That's there were just airstrikes on uh, on Gaza just 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 yesterday yeah. so it's still pretty bloody yeah but go ahead fair enough yeah for I mean, it's sure. not as bloody as it was during the the second intifada right but that was really really bloody I mean Palestinian culture has deeply digested how much more important it is not to just suicide bomb and that's been amazing that's been a huge turnaround all the Temple Mount uh almost conflicts that almost happened didn't happen because the Palestinians didn't just sort of stupidly wander into the into the firing line, that, right? And and the yeah. uh, you know the the Israelis, the most gung ho millennialist Israelis, have not you know gone ahead with their uh, plans to uh, completely expel the uh, Haram Sharif and uh, right. They can't exactly. They can't they, for the they moment. They could, but there is you know they could. I and, at and least have this sense everything. that you know we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. That you know we sort that of is you know, the Western narrative that it was the liberal <clears throat> assumption about every time it happened. But everyone is actually motivated to not do that because they've noticed that better ways are possible. I mean, maybe the internet also. Maybe marijuana is not the only thing that helped. Maybe just access to information and reference is an amazing thing that makes it possible. That makes it harder for us to dehumanize each other and makes understanding. See, I, th- I see it going more in, in precisely the other direction. Since the uh, the second intifada, there's, the the Israelis and the Palestinians have been growing more and more apart from each other. Disagree but, strongly. Yeah, disagree strongly. Uh, well, let's go back to Yesh Gvul, Right, borders were one of the main hopes for peace. Clearly defined borders, like like the Californians told us, very important for uh, personal stability, personal integrity, and one of the main arguments for the two state solution. Yeah, don't get me started. No, get me started. Um, Californians really put out there. Berkeley, I attribute a lot of social theoretical innovation, the creation of theoretical models that are circulable rather than ones that are just entirely dreamlike, like nonviolent communication like um, reassessing gender objectivity and identity. I associate those particular progressive accomplishments with having been filtered through Berkeley. Maybe that's a misperception. Maybe that's just some kind of like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Borders? What do borders have to do with this? What do you mean? Borders are so important uh-huh. for establishing uh, integrity. On a personal level, but also on a physical level. How did this come out of California? 
I think that whole language is totally from California. Uh, I mean, otherwise, uh, boundaries, yeah. the, the importance. Okay, okay. Berkeley yeah. had a problem. The same problem, right? It's not gentrification, it's migration. The hippies were coming through Berkeley and it started to overwhelm Berkeley. Berkeley had a crisis similar to France, similar to Europe nowadays, of being built on a certain coolness and fun and peace, but then losing that to the waves of pilgrims coming and had to come up with a language to negotiate that. Much like France is struggling right now with a language to be racist without being racist. You know, how do you how do you deal with fundamentalism without being racist? And so France is like trying to find a way through like language if they just, you know, legal, you know, whatever they're doing in France. Berkeley, they had to come up with a language for establishing a consent language along how long it's cool to, for you to stay in my house. As opposed to when it's just cool. It's cool to stay by you, right? And we're all staying by your house for a while. Well, and it's I, like, get out of my house. I've been here for too long. I have You're a not problem being cool with anymore. the notion of, you know, my house to, to begin with. I hear you. I hear you. Especially in, in the, the case of France, which, you know, was the oppressive colonial power in North Africa right. for generations. Good so, example. Know, they're talking about, you know, we don't want North Africans in, in our house. Is certainly rather ironic on the face right. of it. If you're going to stay in our house, you must uh, behave according to our acceptable ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this yeah, is yeah. maybe the the sin in liberalism where people do want to feel okay about their houses and their standards and justify it because it's my house and my standard and consent and personal boundaries and my house is my things, your house is your things, you're free to have your house. There's less and less of a public sphere than there ever was, but, what it, but that's where you can sort of like wear whatever clothes you want. But you can stay in my house today until 8 a.m., 8.30 a.m., a lot of modern polyamory really depends on this. Certain hours, certain questions, defining the dynamics in a relationship according to the dynamics of the relationship through clearly defined boundaries established personally. That's also very good, right, on a certain personal level. Hey, liberalism, it's a not so bad. Personal boundaries, hey, that's an important thing to be able to start from. Or what does also do with the Palestinian question? What do you mean? The well, whole problem I'm there is boundaries. The whole problem there is where does one thing end and where does one thing encroach? I mean, even a lot of the slimiest Israeli tactic, right? Have like an interim border, let's say the Green Line, or whatever other interim borders have been agreed on, and then just start encroaching a little bit, start constructing a little bit onto the other person's olive trees. Well, areas. well of course, that's what's been going on since 1967. I know. It's terrible. Only now, at this point, it isn't, you know, just, um, it's not creeping, but galloping. I hear you. Yeah. <clears throat> I hear you. I hear you. Anyway, I don't think there can be any equivocation about, you know, two points to begin with. Well, learning one to the other. Learn uh, Two, two we points all to begin with. One first, morality first the other. that, you know, Israel has to withdraw to its legal boundaries. Secondly, or, or, hang on, or, hang, on, or hang, on, hang on, we'll get to the or, or we'll get to the or, or just give everybody we'll full rights, or, let everybody we'll get to vote. The or. Okay. Secondly, which relates to the or, Legal okay, boundaries. that even within the green line, even within the, you know, quote unquote, legal state of Israel, right, there has to if. be, there has to be a single secular state. There has to be a legal, you know, um, uh, equality. For um, for Jews and Palestinians, which there currently is not, where you know Jews are by law, uh, you know favored in terms of access to land and housing and so on. That although sh- that shit has got to be done away with. Although there and is, that there brings is a weird us, mix, that right? brings us to the or that maybe at some point there can be a single secular state in all of historic Palestine. That brings us to the or. But wow. in the but but in the meanwhile in the meantime. Just to you know, um, bring about enough pressure for the um, for the first two demands, 
you know, I think that we have to support BDS, bringing it down to brass tacks. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> let's for starters. Say, let's say. I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. Let's say. Boycott, divestment, sanctions. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely better than bombing buses. <laughs> I mean, if you had to pick, if you had to pick a way to resist, that's definitely the nicer way. Fits in nicely with capitalism where you just don't spend your money. Vote with your dollars. I hear you. I'm not so against it. Again, I definitely prefer that to actual violence. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not excited to be like, but I, I, the thing I am excited to try to argue for is just how much that language doesn't necessarily describe where people are at. Like well, you're saying is truth. I don't know truths. what you mean by that. I don't know what you mean by that. Okay, I'll, I'll say like this. I'll say like this. One secular state yeah. was the Nakba. Like the, uh, you're oh, talking no, about. No, it wasn't. Okay. It certainly was not. <laughs> I really. Go on. Go on. One secular well, state was not the Nakba. I thought that was exactly how the problem started. No, with one secular that, no that was the where esta- Arabs had full rights. No, that was the establishment of a Jewish state. In which Arabs had full rights. No. Really? Yeah. Go on. But, 48 but, didn't give all the Arabs in everywhere that was made Israel full voting rights. That's new uh, to well, me. Oh, excuse me. Now you're narrowing it. Now, yeah. Initially, you said full rights. Now you're saying full, full rights. voting rights. Okay, oh. there are rights other than voting. Go on. What rights did Arabs not have after 48? Access to land, access to housing. They had all those things where they were. They, they, they weren't like yeah, but where, any yeah, villages, but where they were, they, they, were. Had been, they had been ethnically cleansed and they no longer were where they were, where they, you know, where they were was no longer where they had been a couple of months earlier. Right. The ones who stuck around. <laughs> the ones who stuck around. You're saying good. The ones who were there. Uh, yeah, see, this is exactly what I was worried about. No, no, this is a this is a good concern, and I do appreciate this because this is part of the problem in trying to work this shit out. Is yeah. Exactly what you're talking about, and how much it goes right into how outraged we are at the way people justify uh, living the way they want to live and having what they have. I hear you. I hear you. And still, a lot of the Zionist argument has always been pragmatic, not idealistic. And it has always been outraged at idealism at the expense of, you don't understand how it is here on the ground, you know? And it's not a good argument, but you don't need a good argument when you're already defensive of who you are and what you're doing. Because a lot of the alternative has been on the ground impossible. Okay, so let's give some context before 48. There was a strong Palestinian Arab movement of... Maybe we shouldn't have a blood war forever. Maybe we can do something together, a shared secular state. And those people were wiped out over about 10 years of the Palestinian leadership. Are, just who, who, are you, sure. who are you talking about? Uh, do I even know any names? Google Google early Palestinian uh, Zionism or something. I don't know. What's his name? The Mufti? The Mufti's faction against all the other factions wiped out all the other Palestinian leadership who were interested or open to any degree of collaboration or work well let's talk about Zionists. those voices on the on the israeli side i want you okay. one guy you mentioned in your book a little known favorable figure i believe yaakov dehan is he still little known isn't that weird yeah let's talk about yaakov dehan. go please do okay well this is an argument for religious fundamentalism as a tool towards more peace than states and secular states specifically can afford because the secular Zionist state is who did the Nakba, who did all the atrocities of 48, established the precedent, although, you know, with also the conceits of we're doing this for you guys also. We're liberating the Arabs also. That was part of, I think, the 48 narrative. 
uh, create a Jewish homeland that's also going to be utopian for you people also. In the same way that gentrification offers to make a nice neighborhood for also, for all you people can also get jobs working in our Amazon factories or whatever. Um, Yaakov Dahan is a rather curious, is a, I almost want to say use the throw of the word postmodern around, cause, and I'll tell you why. He starts out just as a queer Dutch dude who's a poet, and he gets into Jewish religious fundamentalism somehow. He gets he becomes really Haredi, and he becomes the most representative for the Haredim to to who exactly, to whoever basically to everyone else. He becomes the public face in the same way that I can't even think of a good comparison. Uh, uh, Rabbi Niederman is like the public face of Satmar. There's like the the actual Reb is in Satmar, and then there's Reb. Okay, like but his, his role in early Zionism, or not even early anti-Zionism, early anti-Zionism, early Jewish yeah, yeah, religious yeah, yeah, indigenous yeah, yeah. anti-Zionism mm-hmm. in Jerusalem um, was what ne- period are we talking about exactly? 1918. That early, okay. 1915. Mm-hmm. 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 That's when he starts. Mm-hmm. When is when is he assassinated? The 20s, the 30s. I say it over there, but I forget. He's assassinated early enough um, that it wasn't even a question anymore. 1924. 1924. Yeah. Assassinated by the Zionists. That's pretty early. Yeah. Right. And the Zionists were all secular at the time. There was a conflict between the Zionists. Well, they weren't and the... all secular at the time. They were overwhelmingly secular at the time. But it was then... a fundamentally secular movement that some religious people got into. Yeah. And, and if you were a religious person into it, you were like not on board with whatever the religion was saying. Because the entire religious establishment of Judaism was against Zionism because Zionism was a secular movement aiming to create a secular state like the one you describe with I mean in Herzl's model Arabs have full rights right in in Alt Newland right, he has an Arab mm-hmm. the the triumph of Herzl's Alt Newland is an Arab defeats a sort of Jewish nationalist to become prime minister of Israel in Herzl's model and that's what proves how good Zionism is in Herzl's model but in in application, it didn't work out no, that way. No, and in any event, uh, Yaakov Dehan was, uh, you know, he wanted coexistence with the Arabs on a, on an equitable basis, and he was ultimately assassinated by the Zionists. Well, he, have I got that right? Uh, maybe not. Maybe maybe not. Let's maybe, let's maybe say maybe not because okay, he was ahead. negotiating for the Aguda, for the uh, Haredi, which means the traditional religious fundamentalist Jewish community in Jerusalem, who are super anti modern. Right, so right. you know, dress like uh, keep their women very, very modest, and like all the things, all the things we associate with religious fundamentalists. To this day, to this day, in Meisharim, the graffiti says Zionists get out. This is a Palestinian neighborhood, and they mean it only rhetorically. There's no Arabs living in that neighborhood. They can get they they make it's fun to do crime with Arabs and have like sort of like give people jobs like without a license. That's like a fun sort of Haredi thing to do in Jerusalem. Um, so to also avoid paying taxes, also have localized network, whatever. They were negotiating a treaty on the ground between the actual Jewish community in Meisharim of the rabbis, of the schools, uh, including Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld and the entire Aguda. All right, again, this is when? This is clearly before 1924, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. after Herbert Samuel, mm-hmm. after, after the violent outbreak um, in 1918 and 1917, but before the violent out, before the, the Hebron riots, mm-hmm. before things get mean in a way that they can be described. I don't know if your viewership knows about the Hebron riots. Part of the main well, apologetic argument— that it's argument, a podcast, there is no viewership, but right. listenership. But, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I assume they could see the voices, like on Sinai. No, um— the one of the main ways the Zionists won the Jews over was the Hebron massacres, 
was the Arab uprisings were rather brutal. I don't know if that's a good comparison. Well, to yeah, the there was plenty of brutality on both sides throughout well, this whole period. Obviously, some. Let me throw another name at you. One, 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 side one which you, one which you don't mention, but uh, in your book. But I'm going to throw at you anyway, Judah Magnus. Ah, oh, Gavaz. Now that's a Zionism. Yes, but a different kind of Zionism. Yeah. Why didn't it win? Because he was a dilettante, on some level, wasn't he? Well, first of all, what did he stand for? Uh, yeah, uh, everyone should have rights. No one should be displaced. That's Zionism. Right. Great. And I would argue that there are historical reasons why that Zionism was defeated. Go on. Yeah. For example. Well. Top three historical reasons. Because because the whole Zionist project was ultimately predicated on the displacement and expropriation of the Palestinians. Oh. Yeah. How could that be true when there were so many early Zionists who were uh, insisting we shouldn't do that? Well, I'm but being I'm, devil's advocate right now. I mean, this is, this is against the... Clearly, historically but we, but we, we, but we, we, but we just conceded that those are the ones who were uh, who were ultimately defeated, and that the, it was you know, other people invested money, other people invested time and money. Rothschilds put up their vineyards pretty quick, lost yeah. their hearts. I'm not quite sure. I'm getting I'm getting your point. Um, literally, historically, like all the idealists were very secondary to just people doing things, to money being invested, to development projects already in progress, and. This is the problem with trying to do any kind of good migration without being part of the problem. This is a problem in trying to negotiate the good version because right away the street kids get mad, pick up on that there is no way to hold back the exploitive thing. And as soon as you're giving the idealistic best case version of Zionism, you're still a fucking Zionist, right? You're still on that side. And the main way around that is not to be, is to have some other reason not to be. But the problem is you still need a street coalition. This is still like a fundamentalist, like, anti-modern, anti-feminist coalition of Jews and Muslims against Zionism almost happened, but the Zionists fought it because they wanted a sort of modernized, secular, uh, feminist, and futurized version. And this is the main way it justifies itself on the ground. Okay, now you're you're talking about Yaakov Dahan, not about Judah Magnus. Right. Uh, Because the truth is, Judah Magnus, how how close did he even get? Did did he have a faction? Well, yeah, he did have a faction. Where? <clears throat> Where? Yeah. Uh, on the ground in on Palestine. The ground? Oh, good. That's great. Why didn't they uh Ikud was his faction. Ikud. Yeah. How how close did they get to doing anything? Well, yes, but uh, and I'm arguing that there are historical reasons, but they didn't. I know. Precisely. I hear We're you. We're kind of around the circles here. For future here. reference, yeah. how do you avoid those sort of historical... This is This is the problem, right? Um, well, on, perhaps on, on, on insufficient uh, you know, evidence, I continue to believe that maybe there can actually be such a thing as people learning from history and, and human progress and people, you know, consciousness actually evolving in a progressive direction. Amen. But how does that make anything realer than the natural coalitions happening on the ground in terms of people's affection for people who speak their language and like their rock and roll songs? You know what I mean? I hear you. I agree with you. I want to agree with you. I am scared of having an idealism that loses sensitivity to what street gangs are already doing. Well, I don't know why you keep bringing up street gangs. Because they are exactly. the actual people. Because that is the actual people <clears throat> involved. Because they're going to be doing their thing. Because that's who you have to win over. You have to win over street gangs if you want to have. All right. Well, this gangs. gets back to you know the whole discussion about about nationalism and whether you know all so nationalism. Yeah is evil or whether all nationalism is equally evil. It's a little ridiculous and, because and what what I argue and you know what what I did argue in the podcast what I did about this is that uh, you know all nationalism 
um, is subject to its abuses and it's kind of kind of got got a dark side, uh, as it were. Okay, tends towards. <clears throat> Uh, but not all nationalism is, you know, um, is, is equal. Not all nationalism is completely embraced that ugly side. Do you have a okay? favorite one? And th- is it, do I have a favorite one? Favorite nationalism that just didn't go awry, that stayed righteous and prides itself on its own actual virtue? Uh, well, I mean, you know, my heroes, the Zapatistas, consider themselves oh. to be Mexican Yay. nationalist on a certain oh. level. Okay. okay no, and certainly, uh, you know. And Emil- they never did any atrocities. Um, these the Zapatistas have not committed any atrocities. That's amazing. I don't hold them above all criticism. No, that's way. a whole other conversation. But they have not committed any atrocities. No, that's great. That's so, a good sign. Uh, and you know, I mean, Emiliano Zapata, who they took their name from, was also a Mexican nationalist. Oh, okay. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, I draw a distinction between the the, the nationalism of a um, a national liberation movement, as it were, and the nationalism of uh, you know an imperial power. Okay. Now, when you're talking about Zionism, I mean, some people view it, I don't, some people view it as a, as a national liberation movement, as the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. I don't. Sure. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> is not and never was. Thank you. All right, good. We don't no, have to I'm argue asking. about that. Okay. Good. Glad cool. that, that cool, we don't cool, have to cool. argue about that. Cool, cool, cool. I've definitely heard, I've got my buddy in Jerusalem, Menachem College. he's like a rabbi scholar friend of mine. He says, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm definitely not a Zionist, but I do believe in Jewish repatriation to the land of Israel, which sounds like an absurdity. Like, I'm not, I'm not a hipster. I'm not a gentrifier. I'm just trying to find some. Well, yeah, but that was kind like, of the Judah Magnus position, to, to my understanding. There's something a little you know? disingenuous mm-hmm. about it, isn't there? Oh, well, I, that's, what I'm, that's exactly what I've been arguing, yes. Yes. That there's historical reasons that tendency in Zionism, that soft Zionism, as it were, was defeated. Because it's ultimately contradictory to the fundamental nature of the Zionist project. Right. Yeah. Okay, so when I'm in jail, one time I'm in jail, yeah. and and. The main time you have cross pollination between Jews and Arabs in jail, who they basically keep pretty separate in order to avoid, you know, murder, mm-hmm. um, is in transit to the higher courts. Like you, in the morning, if you have if you have a court date, they you, everyone gets shackled. Shackles made in America, in Virginia. They're all like proudly labeled on the hands <laughs> and feet. <laughs> between any transition, get into like a big what they call a posta, which is a big sort of like uh, travel vehicle, and everyone sits next to each other. And there, they just Jews and Arabs all together. That's cool. Usually, uh, nonviolent offenders, sort of near nonviolent offenders, although it's kind of a mishmash. And if you go to a higher court, you might just be in there with anybody at all who's going to higher court that day. So one day, I'm going to higher court for the sake of an appeal, and everyone in my bus is Islamic fundamentalists who got, got arrested as a big crew. Cause for what? I can't possibly know. Okay. But there was a moment as where uh, the the posta is passing over a point where you can see. The Temple Mount, Al-Quds for a second. Mm-hmm. And they have a ritual where as they get closer to the point where you can see it for a second, everyone just gets close to the window, maybe opens a Quran and says a line around it, but just like just start, almost starts chanting Al-Quds as mm-hmm. you sort of approach the side of it. And this is very meaningful to me because that's the Temple Mount. You right. know? And, I, and I get excited also, and I, and I sort of want to see it too. Because mm-hmm. also my sort of panoramic like, dilettante New York spirituality is like, yay, you know, a holy moment. Gewalt, and I want to be a part of this. And so I, I, I get up, and they look at me just sort of angrily and suspiciously and say, what are you looking at in Hebrew? Mm-hmm. Because they wanted me to talk. And I, and mm-hmm. I say, the holy. Mm-hmm. And, and, they, and they, so then they sort of switch to, hey, which of us should be here? Mm-hmm. And I said, all of us. And they said, no, just us. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is that, and I try to make a Quranic argument. It's like, is that really what Allah wants? It really wants to vision. Allah wants us to, doesn't he want us all to be able to be? And they're like, no. 
that's all that's all just dumb bullshit. They don't say like the word dumb bullshit, but basically they're not really interested. And and eventually, like uh, I'm right, with so the guy. What's the upshot of all this? Interesting. I'm gonna anecdote, tell you the last line. I'm gonna tell you. I'm tell you the closing yeah. line. Yeah. I say I say at one point like you know, I I I hope Allah shows us just a better way, and the guy just laughs and says, "We already have a better way." It's not a charismatic argument because equity and equal rights and the utopian sensible thing you're describing is not necessarily as meaningful to people as whatever else them and their friends are already doing. And this is the problem on the ground that liberalism does hope to try to overcome either through secular narratives, through enlightenment narratives, through whatever it takes at the expense of maybe accepting how wonderful and fun that is and hasn't really figured out a way to reconcile that. Until that's reconciled, how wonderful it is to have your own fundamentalism with your own friends and how much nicer that it sounds than a coherent secular state, it's always going to be a problem. And there is something problematic about identifying with uh, just how dumb that is and noticing how much what people live in is not this sensible utopian narrative. You know, I like to try to carry both things because you're absolutely right, Bill. I hear you. You know what am I right about? Um, racism, double plus ungood. Oh, gee, thank you. Uh, equal rights <laughs> is the only way. Needs to be reinforced. No excuse for occupation. Mm. No excuse for any kind of that. Okay, you brought up the Kurds. Yeah. Should we talk about the Kurds? Please, before we wrap it up because we've, yeah. we've been wrapping for a long time. I hope we're not in a hurry. So. The Kurds are a really important. Sort of. Uh, question in the middle because Zionists love Kurds love, this, Zionists love Kurdistan yeah okay well, I know Zionists love Kurdistan this is yeah. exactly what's driving me crazy right yeah. now is, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is this contradiction okay yeah because um, uh, you know I've been involved in uh, solidarity with um, the Syrian revolution solidarity efforts here in New York with the Syrian revolution and by that I mean both the you know the general Arab led Syrian revolution mm. and I've been working with a group called um, Syria Solidarity New York City and also with um, particularly the, the Kurdish revolution, the Rojava revolution. Um, and there's also another group which I was involved with uh, here called um, a Rojava Solidarity New York City. And um, over, you know, uh, the past couple of years, there was a moment back in 2014 when uh, the Free Syrian Army and the, um, and the Rojava Kurds were actually united against ISIS oh. and against the Assad regime. And oh. then they were sort of pitted against each other by um, basically, you know, under the pressure of the Assad regime, the Free Syrian Army uh, was forced to um, get in bed with with Turkey and accept Turkish military protection and political patronage. And of course, Turkey is completely hostile to the Kurds and to the notion of any kind of Kurdish autonomy. So uh, this was uh, this, you know, sort of pitted the, the Kurds and the Arabs against one another. And the Kurds, unfortunately, you know, under pressure, under pressures of their own, have been particularly now that they've been invaded by Turkey and by collaborationist Syrian Arab militias, um, you know, under uh, Turkish military leadership. Uh, you know, the uh, Rojava Kurds themselves have now, you know, made an alliance with the Bashar Assad regime, which the uh, which the the Arab forces have been have been bitterly fighting for the past you know, um, seven years now. So, um, a really, really tragic, um, situation. And, uh, and now, you know, over the past few years that they've, that the Arabs and the Kurds in Syria have been pitted against each other. We've been hearing more and more propaganda on both sides and the propaganda on the, on the Kurdish side 
is that the um, you know the the Arabs and the the Arab uh, militias around the Free Syrian Army and particularly those who were accepting Turkish patronage, uh, you know they're all jihadists and they're all uh, you know Islamic fundamentalists and they're all terrorists, and the uh, and the position on the uh, on the Arab side, the stereotype being bandied about about the Kurds first is that you know they're they're Stalinists, you know, uh. even though they're actually post. They're bookchinists. They've actually embraced... Which is a little better. <laughs> it's quite significantly better. Yeah, significantly better. Although I've been reading a lot so, of Frank Watson lately. If you, go, uh, back, if you, go, if you lately. go back to the ideological roots of, um, of, the, of the Kurdish revolutionary movement, uh, you know, with the PKK in Turkey a generation ago, they actually were kind of Stalinist, but they've moved away from that, and they've actually been moving in a very progressive, you know, pro-democratic, uh, you know, and anarchist direction for the past uh, for the past ten years at least, Yay. right? So they've repudiated their Stalinism, right? So, um, uh, so that that that's one calumny against them, and the other calumny against them is that they are supported by Israel, right? And that they're you know dun, dun, dun. exactly, and that you know they're uh, you know so Kurdish nationalism is kind of you know this charade which has been created by Israel. It's a, it's a Jewish conspiracy, right? So. <clears throat> Which is absolutely maddening. And there actually is, you know, as you were pointing out, there actually is this affinity that the Zionists have for the Kurds because the Kurds in Syria and the Kurds in Iraq are fighting Arabs. Right. Right. And the also Kur- India. India's on board. Yeah, exactly. Team fear of yeah, Islam. Yeah, 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 exactly. Narendra Modi and his whole, you know, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, yeah, strategic yeah, partnership right. with Bibi Netanyahu. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Full, utterly, full utterly sinister. So uh, well, you just made kind of an argument for it's not as bad as something. I feel like no, no, no. Sorry. I, <laughs> well, for starters, it's overstated. Okay, I mm. mean, the, the, the no, certainly to be as polite as possible. I got excited for a second. <laughs> to like, be as, oh, Kurdistan has hope. You're, okay, no, sorry. To be as polite as possible, the notion that Kurdish nationalism is a uh, is a is a is a Jewish conspiracy is you know <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I hear you. Okay. Although, although, mm. although, let's say, like, you don't have to. Just, have hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just, just because Zionists are making, you know, political hay off of, um, off of, you know, the fact that the Kurds are fighting the Arabs doesn't um, doesn't mean that Kurdish that it doesn't mean that the Kurds are actually looking to Israel as their political patrons. And certainly, the the Kurds are not looking to Israel as their political patrons. Okay, maybe you can begin to make that case about the. Um, about uh, uh, Masoud Barzani and the mm. um, and the and the Kurdish leadership in Iraq, I don't believe you can make that case about the the Kurdish leadership in Syria, who are like revolutionary leftists and and you know and influenced by anarchism. Sure. Okay. So, um, uh, but to me, you know, the the tragedy of this whole situation is that the Kurds and the Palestinians have so much in common. The Kurds and the Palestinians should be natural allies. They are both. Um, stateless peoples of the greater Middle East who um, have been rendered stateless because when the victorious allies were redrawing up the map of um, of the Middle East and the Sykes-Picot Treaty and so on in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, there were two people who they left off the map, okay, the Kurds and the Palestinians. With the Palestinians, it's a little bit uh, more complicated because the Brits actually promised the mandate of the Star of Palestine to both to the Jews and to the Arabs and sort of played them off against each other. But ultimately, 
ultimately the the Palestinians were left off the map. And the Kurds were also left off the map. And in in fact, with them, with the Treaty of Severes, I believe it was, Hmm. there actually was for a while before that treaty was was abrogated by future treaties, there actually was a period of a few years immediately after the... um, uh, the First World War, where, where the Kurds were also promised a state, and oh. then they and then they were you know thrown overboard and betrayed, basically by Turkish nationalism. So, um, uh, you know, the, the 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 Palestinians and the Kurds are sort of in a very analogous situation, right? They're both stateless peoples who were left off of the map by the by the victorious allies when they redrew the map of the entire region after the First World War. Okay, and they're still trying to fight for some kind of, at least self-determination and autonomy today, okay? Right. If not actual statehood. I mean, the Palestinian leadership aspires to that. The Kurdish leadership does not, although they used to. They've mm. given up. When they gave up uh, Stalinism and Maoism, mm. they also, you know, gave up uh, separatism, narrowly defined. And now, How ironic. Yeah. Now they actually want... Um, no, I don't know if it's ironic exactly, because... I they, think of Stalin... I think of communism as a way out of nationalism. Uh, well, yes, but what communism and nationalism have in common is that they're both statist. So when they uh, when, when they moved in a um, right when they, when they moved in a in a more uh, anarchist both direction, statist. they moved away from both separatism and um, and 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 at least you know they moved away. They still have a certain kind of ethnic nationalism, but they don't have. They're not nationalist in the, in the sense of actually aspiring to statehood. They've at least formally disavowed that. But in any event, you know the the Palestinians and the and the and the Kurds fundamentally they should be allies and yet they have been pitted against each other because you know the kurds are being are being uh, oppressed by arabs and by turks and the uh, and and the, the the israelis see themselves as the enemy of the arabs and the turks and and, and because you know the israelis see um See the you know see themselves as the enemies of the Arabs and the Turks and some of them some Israelis have sort of been promoting the Kurdish cause for I would argue cynical reasons. There, uh, there, there are really? some well at least reasons for the feminist uh, armies. At least reasons you know which have more to do with the you know their own political convenience that of the Israelis as opposed to um, you know any uh, single standard commitment to the self determination of stateless peoples. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Only <laughs> so, feminist stateless peoples can have states. The right. Though I would see, I would argue that that's sort of the propaganda cover for it. You don't you know? think there's something in it where there's a part of the self justification. I mean, there's propaganda we put out, and there's propaganda we take in to give ourselves. Cozy that's kind of the, the, the propaganda cover for it. Is you know, just like you know, you've heard this whole term pink washing. Yeah, yeah. Where you know, Israel is you know is very gay friendly today, or makes a pr- super gay friendly, makes a big pretense or a big show of being of being very gay friendly, as opposed to you know all those backward Arab states. Right. So you know, similarly, I think that you know, there's this tendency now among. Israelis who were enthusiastic for the Kurds, you know, to sort of um, uh, portray the Kurds as very, um, you know, very, very Super feminist cool, and mon- uh, right. very feminist and very for uh, you know, pictures ge- of their soldier ladies, gender equality cool. and all that, as opposed to, you know, those backward Arabs. Right. So anyway, so because there's this kind of uh, cross fertilization, which is going on some, I would I would argue, OK, at least for their own self-interested reasons, the uh, you know, some Israelis have been rallying around the Kurds. There are some Kurds who apparently who have, you know, sort of been, uh, you know, looking favorably on the Israelis. And, you know, my some of my, uh, you know, Syrian Arab friends 
who have, you know, been pitted against the Kurds now because of this whole terrible situation. Oh, no. You know, they've been, you know, showing me these uh, these uh, photos on their smartphones of um, of Kurds. Hard to say whether they're actually Syrian Kurds or Iraqi Kurds or whatever, right. but, you know, holding up the Israeli flag. Right. As if, you know, that's supposed to, like, indict the Kurds. Like the Trump and, chanting <clears throat> in Hong Kong. Exactly. Like the like the pro-Trump chanting in Hong Kong. Yeah. Exactly right. Well, this you got it. it. Exactly yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the American flags that the, 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 the Hong Kong protesters are waving. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Exactly. And to me, this is a tragedy. Why is this it is a tragedy? This is an absolute tragedy. Why isn't it just sort of local meaning and associative, almost like an associative disorder? Well, you call it an associated disorder. I call it a tragedy. Whatever you, however you want to slice it. The degree to which it's not a tragedy is the degree to which it's like nice to have any kind of way of describing who you are. Like, let's say, is is being a Met fan tragic because sports is basically <sighs> stupid, or is it just like a way of relating to your neighborhood and stuff? I, I'm sorry if this is a frustrating argument, but I'm a big believer and respecter of local symbolisms. You know what I mean? To the degree, let's say, even something like neo-Nazism in the Ukraine. Like, neo-Nazism in the Ukraine is pretty, pretty bad, right? But on the other hand... What other hand? The other hand is it's nice to have a way to talk about your own independence and your own freedom from some kind of terrifying thing. And understanding and relating that is... And this is a big bookshin theory, right? This this is a bookshin idea. It's really important to accept people's local languages. It's really important to hear the sense of importance of that to them in order to relate to them. Otherwise, it's all just like alienated consternation. Look, <clears throat> I support, I supported the Maidan revolution, okay? I support mm. the right of uh, the Ukrainians to, um, you know, find their own way and not be in the, in the shadow of imminent Russian invasion, right. okay? That said, I also oppose 100% absolutely without equivocation, oppose the, uh, you know, the neo-fascist elements which are coming to the fore in the whole uh, resurgence of Ukrainian nationalism that we've seen over the past 10 years. Absolutely. Just like I oppose, you know, the equivalent, uh, you know, extremoid Russo-nationalist types on the other side. And, you know, I mean, I, I, you can argue, you know, when this is something I first started grappling with when Yugoslavia started falling apart, you know, going back more than a generation now. Okay, with um, you know Serbian nationalism coming to the fore, uh, you know there was a, a kind of a, a grappling in the other republics. You know, initially Slovenia, Croatia, as to you know, are we going to you know struggle for the soul of Yugoslavia, uh, or are we going to go our own way and form an independent country? And uh, you know, or two or three, or two or three, as the case may be. Ultimately, six more than six now with Kosovo being independent. Wow. Now it's seven. Uh-huh. So. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm not going to argue against Croatian independence per se, <laughs> okay. except in as much as I'm an anarchist and I argue again, I, I, I can make uh-huh. some kind of argument against any kind of state. Independence is okay. imperialism, right? <laughs> but I am going to argue against, you know, the oppressive fascistic state of Franjo Tudjman, oh. which, which was just imposing, you know, this ugly ethno-nationalism in Croatia, which perfectly mirrored the ugly ethno-nationalism of Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia. Oh, all right. So, yeah, you get absolutely. what I'm saying here? Absolutely. Is there a way to make these criticisms very accessible to the people on the ground? Because, I mean, I hear you, and I, I'm sorry to say that. It sounds like even disingenuous to say that. 
the challenge is relating to people's narratives and language in terms of describing even locally their own things. Let's say like uh, – and this is why – one of the ways I appreciate um, any degree of sense of languages locally. This is part of why – it's very hard for me just to be too aggressively, demonstratively militant about political ideas in mixed company very often. I'd really rather just kind of listen to hear what people uh, are dealing with regionally mm-hmm. and locally. A part you, of that been is expressing some strong ideas and yeah, strong opinions in the context of in the, over the true. course of this conversation. Well, again, this is part of why <clears throat> marijuana is such an easy refuge for me is because uh-huh. it's so universal and so much and, – and even as much as it clearly hasn't solved the problem anywhere – it is such a good bridge in terms of and always and this is part of what I got into from and part of why it's really my inroad into the universal thing behind spirituality and religion, even as much as it didn't solve anything the whole time. Cause the conflicts have so much to do with all the priorities of forced conflicts and finding something else that can be the common denominator instead of just sort of regional affiliations has always been the struggle. I mean, this is one of the uh, imperialism and religion and capitalism have all sort of offered to do this kind of thing. And they're all incredibly flawed to say the least, if not atrociously implicated in the global carnage. Well, capitalism is really driving the whole thing. <clears throat> Isn't it funny how much people awesome, oftenly experience capitalism as some kind of a liberation campaign. Part It's propaganda, total propaganda, I know, but it's also a lot of how people identify autonomy. You know, this is part of the libertarian problem. We didn't talk about Faglin so much. You know how Faglin got into weed? Only through Noah Potter. Noah Potter from Cures Not Wars, from, Dan, from Nine Bleaker, from like the Dana Beale. He's been on a trip for a while to sort of restore... So you're so talking about things that are probably a little bit esoteric for right. a lot of our Local. listeners, but... Uh, Noah Potter is very important <clears throat> for cannabis. Or, which we should make clear when you talk about uh, you know, Cures Not Wars and you know Nine Noah Bleaker Potter? Street. This is like, you know... The remnant faction of the uh, 1960s counterculture group, the Yippies, who continue to survive in some form, I guess, even today. In some form, although they did although, although they, they, they got evicted from Nine Bleecker Street several years ago, right. where they had been ever since, what, 1970, maybe even earlier, 1969, sure, earlier. 68. I wasn't, any event. Wasn't that a So, uh, and they've been, you know, the people who have been organizing the. Uh, International Cannabis March. Yes, the, the the International Cannabis March or the Global Marijuana Day, as it's been variously called, really comes out of the um, the May the the uh, the the May Day uh, Marijuana March, which we've been holding, which they the Yippies have been holding in New York City ever since the. They are um, we. Did you ever, almost say we? Do you, do, you un- do you identify with Yippie? Well, I mean, I, I Yippies were they were like Boy Scouts for me, you know. Oh. Instead of being in the Boy Scouts, I was in the Yippies. Uh-huh, yeah, right. So, <clears throat> Uh, so I guess I do sometimes use uh, that pronoun "we" referring to the yippies. You know, like, there's a saying about the yippies: "Once a yippie, always a yippie." Yeah. On a, certain, on a certain sense, I guess I'm still a yippie today. Yeah. But uh, only in a certain sense. Well, right. <laughs> but in any event, um, <clears throat> uh, Noah Potter uh, was also one of their key activists for quite some time. Still is. He's one of the main ones taking responsibility for the march to this. Day. Oh yeah, is he really the march here in New York City? Yeah, we've actually been negotiating the the, recently the, the, to... the, the, the Cannabis Day March, as I believe they're calling it now, which yeah. is always what the first Saturday in May. So me and him yeah. have had a problem for years. We're both Orthodox Jews, uh-huh. and so you can't really blaze on Saturday. Nonetheless, he's been incredibly embedded in organizing. Make sure well, I it thought happens. the cannabis was kosher. You can't blaze on a Saturday. You can't Saturday's, blaze on the Sabbath. Saturday is very controversial. It's yeah. it's a it's it's a rather antinomian gesture to smoke on a Shabbos. Antinomian. Yeah. What does that mean? Oh, oh, you're not supposed to. So if you do it, it means you're doing something you're not supposed to. Oh, okay. As a deliberate gesture of like 
this is just too important to me, which mm-hmm. is, you know, without getting too into. Well, uh, is it the actual act of like of striking the match, which is the problem or, or, or inhaling the cannabis both smoke? Things, both, both things. Uh, My I, dispensation when I was a kid, when I, cause I got involved with Cures Not Wars as a kid also. I, I, I also. Or Cures Not Wars. Right. It's just Dana Beal. That was one of the latter incarnations of uh, this group around Dana Beal, these latter-day yippies. They'd taken right. on various names over the years. One of them was right. Cures, Not Wars. Right, that where, was the last one at the very end. Where very they were, not wars, meaning that they were repudiating the war on drugs. Right. And Cures, because they were pushing Ibogaine, which the uh, which is right. a, 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 the the uh, psychoactive chemical in a shamanic African vine called iboga that from the cures addiction, which, which supposedly cures addiction. Yeah. Yes, three yes, out of five yes, times. Yes, yes. Three out of five times, not bad. Anyway, so you were saying, so Noah Potter. Noah was Potter actually, is the one who got Faglin into weed. You've Fag- got to be kidding me. Faglin was not into weed. Faglin was just into was just into messianic well, nationalism. Noah Potter is not a um, an adherent of uh, of Faglin's politics. I hope no. Uh, well, <laughs> what we all share is the sort of hope of a sort of messianic fundamentalism that would overcome the the bad religion. In the same way of the new state solution. Well, you, again, now you're using the pronoun "we." Keep me out of it. I don't view it that way at all. Go, go on. Ahead. You're not into not into messianism. Messianism is not legitimate revolutionary aspiration. Not for me. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I recognize that there has been progressive content to certain messianic movements in the past. Okay, but I personally don't want any part of messianism. I hear you. It's it's kind of a dirty word. To uh, me, it is. Walter Benjamin likes using it to describe the naturally acting and and the good revolution what he, what he calls um like uh, what's what's the word he uses for messianic violence is one where no one is trying to hurt anybody but it all just happens the sort of moment where it happens and it's not controlled it's not someone trying to get over on somebody else it's just the sort of event where everything changes and you can't help it and it's just very precious in in Benjamin's narrative, but here I go using like secular terms to justify my own sort of uh, embedded fundamentalist biases. Okay, so Noah Potter and Moshe Faglin. We what all, exactly was the common ground there? We all want a better world, specifically in the context of this dream narrative, of this sort of archaic dream narrative. Uh, I'm sorry. Listen, This hey, is giving me angst, man. I hear you, man. This is the problem with dealing with wild people. This is, this is giving me as much angst as the... Um, uh, uh, as uh, as the Kurds getting in bed with uh, Bashar Assad, the, the notion of the Yippies getting in bed with uh, Likud is giving me the same degree of angst. Right. Well, we didn't know it was Likud at the time. Well, I'm not trying to make excuses. Yeah. I'm trying to make excuses. All right. Let's uh, um, worth a try. Let's listen. No, no. You're saying that's a good comparison. Mm-hmm. Pragmatism breeds these like ridiculous, inappropriate political sort of affiliations, and is the end of anybody of the purity of anybody's revolution this sort of pragmatic thing of like well we don't want to get wiped out so we're going to find someone to identify with they seem powerful and even and maybe there's a way to do it without being dishonest about who you're getting in bed with just because like you gotta get in bed with somebody if you want to not be wiped out and this is the main problematic justification for all these fucking breakdowns is like it's better than being killed well, this also relates directly, of course, to the whole um, uh, historic pact between Zionism and imperialism. Yep. Yeah. It, I mean, best case scenario is that that was like a retroactive, like, well, I mean, also, but also Zionism and, and like, and Stalinism. It, it was just whoever would give you guns. 
Right, but ultimately that turned out to be Western imperialism. Yeah, yeah, they switched. The yeah, that Suez Canal yeah. War sure sort of exactly got better. They got a better deal around then. 1956. And exactly. then Nixon. <clears throat> what about Nixon? Nixon sold uh, Israel guns. Yeah, yeah, weapons. yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. Kissinger didn't want him to. Kissinger is like, I don't think it's a good idea, and Nixon just you know decided. And that's a lot of when that relationship really started. That's when a lot of that right. sort of, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and, and this is the bottom line for a lot of people. This is the, the end of all of our idealisms. This is, this is the, the, the main triumph of capitalism, right, is at the, at the bottom moment is just whatever works. And the main way around that is have networks and, and things better than structures that can live underneath that, that provide a better way around that. Because the main way to avoid that is not uh, pretension. It's successfully somehow not have that the wars happen because you just – I don't know, man. Because you just what? Good question. Somehow, yeah, Good question. Good question. <laughs> somehow no one wants to kill you. No, but, they, but it isn't somehow. Go on. Yosef. Okay, on. there isn't any peace without, without justice. Amen. Okay? Go on. I mean wars happen for reasons and they can't just merely be willed out of existence. Right. Yeah. What's the way out of atrocity rather than having some other larger group come in and adjudicate, you know? That the the war with Rome happened because they brought the Romans in to help them with this other conflict with the Greeks. In light of all I mean like like I, I hear you right, saying how Kurdistan is tragic. Of, of several hundred years. Not that many hundred years. Yeah, that was like that was maybe a hundred years. What between the uh, the Seleucids and uh, the Bar Kochba revolt? Between when the uh, the Bar Kochba revolts is is late in the Roman conflict. Yes, was, exactly. Was, yeah, there was a Roman conflict. The climax. There's a, there's a Roman it. conflict yeah. that, that happens before that. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Okay, okay, okay. <clears throat> um, pragmatism is the main thing that these things come back down to and I'd li- I would like a better way than pragmatism and the main better way that I have is just sort of haunt the periphery well you know there's a place for pragmatism but there's uh, also a place for principle forgive me for being old fashioned I want to I want to <clears throat> agree with you tell me what the place for principle is when pragmatism comes <laughs> well, in well like because I, I, I want to I want to have this is something I'm, I'm desperate for in my life I don't want to feel implicated in the crimes of the world well you, know? you are I know you are. I know. Forget about it. You're, you're, you're give up. Right. You're already implicated. I mean, we're this all is, implicated. Yes, there absolutely. There's no one of us that isn't implicated. This is a lot of where the nationalists start to win. Is, every is, time you, uh, yeah. every time you wait for a traffic light, you're immediately implicated. Absolutely. I'm every time it. you burn fossil fuels, you're implicated. Right. Forget about it. You're absolutely. Implicated. Every yeah, time yeah, you yeah. get on the damn internet, you're implicated. I know. Yeah. I know. We're all implicated. The, the, so the, the there, there, nationalism there, is just not wanting to be sorry anymore. There isn't any, you know, there isn't any purity. Okay. Okay. I'm the first one to acknowledge that okay. it's, it's absolutely impossible to be pure. Purity is a chimera. Okay. Uh, but uh, again, you know, the downside of that critique or the the danger of that critique is that uh, you know you just throw out the notion of principle altogether and just embrace the most ruthless instrumentality. Tell That's, me how we incorporate principle while doing that. I want to agree with you. Well, I'm not a guru. I don't have the answers, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there has to be a right, certain... Still important. All right. No, that's fair. I mean, you know, Nonetheless. this gets back to the whole question of you do the ends justify the means, okay? And the uh, the adherence of, you know, the notion of praxis, like Hannah Arendt and... Uh, mm. and um, Ironically. And uh, Mikhailovich, the um, uh, Yugoslav socialist, uh, you know, they... Um, 
you know, they argued that, uh, you know, means and ends are um, are indivisible and that there really isn't any separation between um, uh, means and ends, between theory and practice, between, right. uh, you know, ideas and their application, the medium is the that message. they're all a part of the same organic process. Yeah. Now, in real life, political struggle means compromise. In, inevitably, you are going to have to compromise your principles. If okay? you're lucky, they'll invite you to compromise. <laughs> if, 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 inevitably, you're going to have to compromise your principles, but there has to be. Uh, or so, die. so, so, so you, 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 you can't, you know, pretend that you can, uh, you know, always use the most pure means. Okay, uh, you know, if, like I say, I, I, you know, my basic inclinations in my heart of hearts. I'm an anarchist and a pacifist, but I understand that in the real world, you have to get your hands dirty with political power and with, you know, physical armed resistance if you're under imminent threat of being exterminated. Or something. You know, unlike Gandhi, I'm not going to tell anybody, well, you know, you should maintain your purity to the point of being exterminated. Can we talk shit about Gandhi for a second? Not, no, we've already okay. done that. We, we did? We, okay, we did that in the last podcast. Okay, We're not fine, going fine, back fine. there again. Fine, fine, fine. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell, you know, when the Kurds are under uh, imminent threat from being exterminated by ISIS, I'm not going to tell them that, you know, they should just submit to being exterminated. I okay? was so relieved so, so they even I, found a way to negotiate anything. Yeah. I was like, oh, so, Hang on. But, you know, but ultimately I recognize, and as much as I was rooting for the Kurds at the Battle of Kobani back in 2014 when they were heroically, you know, resisting ISIS and successfully resisting ISIS, you know, I recognize where did that, you know, ultimately they got in bed with the U.S. They were appealing for air support against ISIS. And then they, you know, forced this political pact with the U.S., which ultimately led to, you know, um, the, the, their militia being groomed as a proxy force by by Washington and the Pentagon. And they became complicit with U.S. war crimes in the uh, uh, in, in the taking of um, of the de facto ISIS capital, Raqqa, which was bombed into rubble by the U.S. And was then, despite being an Arab majority city, was occupied by the Kurds. So it opened up contradictions. OK, so. Um, but I also understand the pressures they were under that led to those contradictions. So there has to be a balance between, you know, um, on one hand, recognizing that political struggle inherently entails compromising your principles here in the world, in the real world, and yet continuing to maintain the uh, awareness or the, or the critique of how compromised means lead to compromised ends oh okay okay so uh, cool yeah all right so you actually understood that Good. that sounds like a rule Glad well I'm, I'm letting it settle in i'm letting it settle in i mean <laughs> this is one of the main hypocrisies in all the religions including buddhism including the best of buddhisms where there is an yeah, buddhists are committing ethnic cleansing in burma right now yeah yeah they can yeah. do anything yeah yeah because because the nice thing about normative religion is that you can justify anything because there's a language for processing that this this particular hypocrisy is, on the one hand, a compromise of morals and values. On the other hand, hey, we got to do what you got to do. And, and owning the karma, I think, is the Buddhist way of framing that. Like, okay, you just own the karma. All right, the last thing mm. that I wanted to, uh, the last button I wanted to push. Yes. Before we wrap it up, because we've been rapping a long time. I feel here like now. we somehow almost covered no ground at all. That's the that's the tragic thing of this. <clears throat> so like we somehow skirted everything we had to talk about. Anti-Semitism. So yes. And thank self you. and self hatred. Ah, okay, good. I thought we were talking about that the whole time, and I'm glad to just get into it right now. 
I have been saying lately something stupid that I like saying, which is I appreciate left-wing anti-Semitism so much more than right-wing anti-Semitism. What do you mean by appreciate? I like to hear it. Oh, you, you like to hear it? Yeah. Call uh-huh. me a masochist because I want to know what I'm doing wrong, even if it's not true. Well, this is maybe a part of how I date, part of how I go on dates is like, like I'll be dating someone for a while and a lot of criticisms will start to emerge that I know are projections of the other person. And still, I love the work of taking it seriously because telling someone they're projecting doesn't really end their concern about you. But no, let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Anti-Semitism, I grew up with this sort of crisis of uh, being my dad criticizing for being a sort of classical self-hating Jew because he was a lawyer for poor people against a lot of Sotmer landlords. And there was a sort of organized community effort in all the Sotmer newspapers. We were once like pursued by a couple thousand people down the street on Rosh Hashanah, uh, screaming all kinds of insulting things. Satmars. Satmars, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Bless their hearts. Screaming like a traitor and uh, self-hater and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Questioning yeah, yeah, my mom's yeah, yeah. validity for conversion. Ugh. You know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, 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 my, yeah. My mom recalls that I wanted, I'm like nine years old at the time, and I had asked her permission because I was a good boy. It's like, just can I please just stand on a car and just respond to them for a second? And she insisted that I not. And I told her later on what I wanted to say was, this is why the Messiah doesn't come, which is, uh, you know, adorable, but but meaningful. I mean, um, anti-Semitism is used, the specter of it is used to silence a lot of criticism of Jewish practices. No kidding. Well, particularly the state of Israel and Zionism. But not only. <clears throat> but not only. But not okay. only. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're all sort of struggling a little bit with the problem of how to talk about uh, Jewish accountability in light of how bad anti-Semitism is and how unrooted it is in reality sometimes. Because there's a certain uh, schism between completely imaginary projectionary anti-Semitism, which is the main popular one rhetorically, and how do you talk about what's actually going on? How do you talk about what landlords are actually doing in developing projects without being a little anti-Semitic? You know? Well, because not all oppressive landlords are Jewish, I hate to tell you. Baruch Hashem. That's very comforting to me because it sure feels like they are. I don't know. Maybe it's a neighborhood thing. I, my dad tells me the same thing. Two <clears throat> trees developers. That's, that's, that's not Jews. We don't know who that is. You know, all those Asians like buying up land. That's, that's not Jews. Okay. Phew. Thank God, you know, but just because, uh, it's true about a lot of people. doesn't mean you're not also part of it. I think that's part of the problem in, using anti-Semitism as a defense to not have to deal with the criticism, which arguably uh, okay, Western what, liberal Jewry is built on. What criticism are you talking about exactly? Refusing to identify with other people. Refusing to care about other people's struggles as much as you care about your own. Well, yes, exactly. This gets back to you know, my whole criticism of my... Um, it's the main uh, problem in Judaism. Of, Otherwise, uh, Judaism is a great religion. Of my Orthodox friends. Well, it's not mm. Judaism. It's a particular strain of Orthodox Judaism. I and, would you know, say it's across the board. Reforms, conservative. No, Why, how did Reform no, Judaism get into Zionism? No? no? Okay, okay. No, oh, no, no, no. Look, I, Go I grew up in a, you know, my, in a Reform house. Well, a, really, a completely secular household. But my father was... Baruch Hashem. You were secular enough that you didn't need nationalism anymore. Because that's a, a lot of secular Judaism gets right into Zionism. My, fa- my father was a, was a, grew up in a Reformed Jewish household, 
right? Right, yeah. which he overcame to so. completely secularize, which is a huge breakthrough. Well, I wouldn't say completely. I uh, was maybe eighty uh, percent. What was he machmer about? What, what 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 practices did he find himself? Still <laughs> well, I mean, into? we uh, you know we we all, we still do the Passover, a very very uh, very abbreviated version of the Passover seder, uh, like the most abbreviated version imaginable. But fasting mon- Yom Kippur was that a thing? You know, ironically, I do when my dad doesn't. Oh, uh, and I'm uh, an atheist. I'm an atheist, but I do it because I, you know if we're going to celebrate Passover. You might as well just fast. And, you know, apart from any belief mm. in a supreme being, which I have none, I have right. no belief in a supreme being, I think that there's something to be said for, you know, taking one day out of the year to not eat and, hey. to, and, and to think about, you know, to actually do some serious introspection about your failings as a human being and how you can be a better person. You know, oh, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, <laughs> Apart from any belief in a supreme being, completely apart sure, from any sure, belief sure. in a supreme being, I think there's something to be said for that. Mm. So, you know, ironically, I do pass... Fa- fa- Fast for Passover, and my dad doesn't. Fast for Yom so, Kippur. I'm sorry, fast for Yom Kippur. Forgive me. You're not allowed to fast on yeah, Passover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry. It's a holiday. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we... that would be seriously yeah, yeah, sorry, like sorry, I, sorry, sorry. I fast on holidays, yeah, yeah, Yom Kippur. Yeah. That's how serious I am. Well, we we always have a big meal at the end when we break fast uh, at the end of Yom Kippur. We right. always, you know, get stuffed uh, on bagels and locks. So um, anyway. Um, right-wing anti-Semitism basically criticizes Jews for being better than we actually are. Like, it, it, like, attacks Jews for, like, being concerned for immigrants and being involved in social struggles. That would be so cool if that was as true huh. as they say it is. Huh. You know, I, 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 like, I'll read anti-Semitic literature from the right to just feel a little better about who we are and what we're doing. But anti-Semitism from the left, which I've had argued is no such thing. My friend Lehman Weisselbaum maintains there's no such thing as left anti-Semitism. Left-wingedness means being anti-racist, and so any anti-Semitism is inherently right-wing, which is a radical position, polemical position. But on the other hand, I love quoting Farrakhan. It's really fun for me to do that in Jewish context. I did it in shul. I, I, I have a shul in Williamsburg that I, my family is very responsible for, O of Shalom. It's the longest-running Orthodox shul in all of Brooklyn, and it's uh, sort of almost emptied out. We're trying to do better things with it now to the degree that we can. And at one point on stage, I just got to just mention Farrakhan's criticism of like like, like a, certain, the Jewish mythology of slavery having to do with Ham because that's a problem. And it's an embedded problem that's hard to deal with. And the best thing about left-wing anti-Semitism is that it's really deeply about the embedded core problems in civilization. The main defensiveness against it is like, is like, but everyone's guilty of those crimes. And it's like, well, that's not a reason to defend them. You know, and I think that's what you're saying. Just because we're all implicated in like capitalism and exploitation isn't really a reason to defend them. You know, on the contrary, it's a reason to try to find better ways, ASAP, own how much we're implicated and find better ways. It's not on us. It was that great Talmudic aphorism. It's not really on us to finish the work, but you're really not allowed to stop trying to do a better thing. The historical Rothschilds are actually implicated in funding the independence of Brazil, doing all kinds of very progressive things. George Soros, right? All those things. It's amazing to me how much anti-Semitic rhetoric has been digested by the Jews in Israel about the globalists. But that's always been a problem a little bit, just having a language to describe the things we're scared of on the other end of things and the sort of disassociative 
sense of like, aha, those, that one of my favorite books ever is Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy. I've never read it. Oh, it's the most important book there ever was. It's just the best <laughs> oh, yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess like, I guess like other books are I mean, important All my too. friends have read it, so I kind of feel like I don't have to. I mean, There's a truth to that. Like the Bible, right? It's very much like the Bible in that way, in that it, in that it does say a lot of the important things, including everyone's paranoid about someone else. And everyone is pretty sure the Illuminatus is somebody else. And a lot of the better narrative is recognizing how much the Illuminatus is you, and now's your chance to make a better world the way you want it to be. So, uh, yeah. Mechaim to that. I like left-wing anti-Semitism because it lets me at least notice where the problems in the world are, where the embedded sort of frustrations uh, are, even as much as... Okay, well, a part, of, a part of me agrees with your friend. Yeah. That there isn't any... Strictly speaking, there can't be left-wing anti-Semitism. Right, left-wing A part means... of me agrees with your friend, but I, I also see that that, uh, that that argument can be, again, subject to its abuses to, you know, let, you know, quote-unquote leftists off the hook for actual anti-Semitism. Right. Okay? How do, so, you, how do you negotiate that? Because I've, I've actually and, been and, really and, impressed at how much and, you do. And there can't be, uh, you know, any denying the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, there's a certain amount of anti-Semitism in Marx, you know. For sure. Anti-Semitism is the main language of conscience of the European West, has been for since before Christianity. It's it's there in like But the, the, the anti-Semitism in Marx had to do with, you know, the Jews kind of, um, you know, internalizing capitalist values and... Uh, and That's his way of letting the Jews <clears throat> off the hook. It's actually a funny one. Like, like on the Jewish question is him arguing the Jews don't have to be Christianized to overcome the money thing. As soon as money is not a problem, the Jews will overcome being evil. They're right, and, but, yeah. but, but also overcome being Jewish. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which to me is kind of problematic. But, but in any event, I'm that, fascinated by that. that is distinct from, uh, you know, the right-wing variety of anti- and I'm not making excuses right. for it, okay? I'm just noting that it's distinct from the right-wing variety of anti-Semitism, which are, you know, the, the Jews are these sinister puppet masters who um, control everything behind the scenes. And there's more of that distinctly right-wing anti-Semitism, which is creeping into, you know, ostensibly left-wing discourse. Oh, yeah. How? How did it get in there? Well, it has to do with the whole... Uh, <clears throat> Red brown politics and the the whole sort of cross fertilization between the uh, the radical right and the radical left, which we've been witnessing in recent years, which also yeah. relates to uh, you know supposed leftists rallying around fascist dictators like Bashar Assad. And... Right? Is there a way around that? Is I mean, there a uh, way around? Yeah. It? Is there a way to? I don't see. Is a, there a way to have those? There isn't a way around it. There's a way to oppose it. To oppose which, it, which is with you know clear analysis. Oh, <laughs> and principle again. Getting oh. back to that you know old fashioned word that nobody likes to use anymore. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think we should wrap it up because we've been uh, rapping a long time here. Oh, I thought that we almost solved all of the world's yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah, we got yeah. really close. I make no aspirations to solving the world's problems. Really? No. I thought that's what we're doing here. I make an aspirations to trying to provide a little bit of intellectual clarity uh-huh. along the way. And global perspective. Yeah, that's it. All right. Yeah. All right. And maybe trying to just nudge things a little bit in the right direction. That's the, the extent oh, of my aspiration. Yay for as much as we Anything can Anything beyond do. that is like, you know, dangerous, hubristic messianism. Mm. 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 Anyway. All uh, right, fine. So once again, why don't you tell us, since you use all these different names, I'm not quite sure how to introduce, your, introduce you to our listeners. Why don't you tell us your name before you sign off? Who are you? Hi, I'm Yosef Needleman. 
Ruiz. I use Ibn Maradachia sometimes. And you also use uh, Yosef Leib. Leib is my middle name. Mm-hmm. Yosef Leib Needleman Ruiz. And that's what that's you wrote your, your book under the name Yosef Leib, Cannabis Hasidus. Ibn Mardachia. Isn't there a little bar- I, I tried to keep it off the cover. But, well, uh, Yosef Leib yeah. Ibn Mardachia. Mm-hmm. Leib is like the middle name. Cannabis Hasidus, the ancient and emerging Torah of drugs. Are you working on a new book? I'm working on a new book, but the truth is I'm working on an edit of this one because it, it is very much a Bush-era document. It has a lot to do with that, and I and uh, you pointed out a bunch of things in there that need some resolution. So I might as well try to get that updated out there. That's probably going to come out before Pop Cartoon Kabbalah comes out. Pop, Pop Cartoon Kabbalah, yeah. whereas I try to resolve... So you're doing a, um, a like like a graphic version, a graphic novel version of, of the Kabbalah? Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 not at all. I'm doing a... sort of attempt to resolve uh, global Kabbalistic languages in the context of recurring characters who endure from medium to medium and try to chart a little bit how the values that inform them change with them. All right. I thought you said something about cartoons. Yeah. Cartoons is a great word for uh, modern mediums for giving over stories. Because we use that word to mean the comic strips in the newspapers, Mm -hmm. but also the sort of moving things that they invented where it's a sort of moving image. And also... You got a publisher for it? Nope. Okay, still working on it. Uh, First things first. You know, might as well finish it first. I got a a Tumblr feed, popcartoonkabbalah.tumblr.com. It does have a lot to do with politics because politics is morality. Politics right. is how we Everything talk about that mythology. Everything human beings do is political on one level or another. Yeah, religion is yeah, politics. Absolutely. And the main thing happening in cartoons is really so subtle sort of uh, coded messages. And the more you're aware of them, the more you have a flexibility of how to use them. All right. Well, All right. Uh, Awareness. I really look forward to seeing your new book. Awareness and flexibility. Um, and... Uh, uh, we'll continue this conversation at some future date, maybe when your new book comes out. Amen. Thanks yeah. for Karen. Thanks for sharing. Right, well, I hope that we gave the audience some uh, food for thought. Some, I, uh, I hope I didn't betray my people or other people too aggressively. And uh, with that, uh, join the join us what, in two weeks for another thrilling episode of The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Rant on you next time. Over and out. Shalom Aleyam. Aleyam.